more than fields I've planted with my hands. I love you more than morning prayer. So peace, so Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapal, and that pause you just heard is Jim not being here. Um, Jim is on uh, vacation. Uh, he went to the uh, small European duchy of Castleberry um, to to get his tail removed in an experimental uh, surgery. So <laughs> we're wishing the best for him. Uh, you might be wondering what Castleberry is. It's uh, it's it's on this wonderful Wikipedia page I found called List of Fictional Countries, uh, <laughs> which I highly recommend you look up in your own time. Uh, you find out where Biloxnia is, uh, which is... That's yeah, part of an early morning show from BBC Radio 2 from the 70s. Like, wow, this is... It's a pretty comprehensive list of fake uh, countries that people have made up for stories. Um, this is going to be the Richard Lester episode, as I'm sure you know, because you double-clicked on the file and all that. Um, with me, and my uh, guest, is uh, Greg David. Hello, Patrick, and everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know Greg David from... Facebook? <laughs> I, I have a movie blog, and I'm, I do uh, kind of amateur weekend filmmaking, too. So oh, that's right. You are, I'll, uh, I'll save that and plug it at the end. Yeah, yeah. You, you're about to start your first directing, aren't you? I am going to be directing my first short in two weeks. Yeah, that's exciting. What's it about? I'm spending all my time storyboarding now. Yeah, what's the what's the short about? It's uh it's a kind of a little little interim webisode between full episodes that we're doing. We have we're doing a series called Clark and Lex about what happens when uh Clark Kent and Lex Luthor have to share a two bedroom apartment after they both lose their careers. Oh nice. It's very very odd couple. <laughs> yeah. Except if spider if uh Superman throws uh, spaghetti at the wall, it's going to go right through it. But other than that, <laughs> essentially the uh, same thing. I think I'm gonna. We should start this episode the same way I start every episode, which is uh, I just saw that tonight the midnight movie playing at the music box is Logan's Run, and I've never seen it, so I'll start this episode. Like, of course, I start every oh, really? episode by asking the guest if they've seen Logan's Run and if maybe they could recommend whether I see it or not. 
Have you wow. seen Logan's Run? I, I have seen Logan's Run many times. It's one of my favorite 70s science fiction films. Yeah? Cause, but cause, it really all depends on your appetite for 70s science fiction. I don't, like, I, I, I might have just an appetite for Michael York, because in preparation for this episode, I watched The Three Musketeers. Is he, is he, as, in go- is he as, as good in um, Logan's Run as he is in Three Musketeers? I don't think he's given as much to do in Logan's Run as he is in The Three Musketeers. He's he's not under license to be charming in that film. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's one of those dystopian futures where he starts out as a, you know, kind of a soulless robot of the of the law enforcement. Oh, and then and then he has to undergo a journey to find his humanity. That's and uncover the secret. <laughs> That sounds really sad. Like just thinking about Michael York having his humanity taken away. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. That guy's too much personality. Like no one. Like that's good casting. You just you see him being another cog in the machine. You're like, nope, something's wrong here. That's Michael York. He's supposed to yeah, be exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of wonder if that was the strategy. Uh, like we t- we sort of talked about on the uh, Ridley Scott episode. Just um, you know, I think the casting of uh, Harrison Ford. Uh, in Blade Runner, it's almost like misdirection in that sort of similar way. Um, yeah, I agreed with that comment. Uh, you know, he was known as for these really expressive, kind of fun roles. And then it's just like, wow, there's like something really happened to this guy <laughs> because Harrison Ford like has, all the life has been beaten out of him. Yeah, he hasn't point. made a joke yet. Um, no, okay. Uh, depending on when we finish that, this up, I might go run and see it. It's a 2K project- projection, and I still haven't figured out what really 2K and 4K is. And some people say it doesn't matter at all, and some people say it's just like watching a projected Blu-ray. So I have never had the opportunity to see that on a big screen either. Yeah, yeah. That will, yeah, that'll probably be on the uh, music box. Has two screens. One is looks like a sort of a studio screening room where it's just sort of a uh, like seven foot tall screen. Um, and then there's the proper sort of movie palace screen, and you always got to call ahead and ask which screen is playing which movie. Otherwise, you end up watching, you know, Purple Rain on a tiny screen, which just doesn't <laughs> feel right at all. I will tell you that the uh, the futuristic city effects are not the best you're ever going to see. Oh, that's that's all the all the better. There's like, but there's going to be like lots of matte paintings and stuff. Lots of miniatures. Oh, miniatures and matte. Lots and lots of miniatures of tubes with little trains going through them. and They're very clearly miniatures, but that's not a thing that's ever bothered me. I kind of like the artistry of, yeah. of um, you know, really transparent effects. It's charming. And as long as, you know, as long as the movie isn't really desperately... Like, like Blade Runner wouldn't have worked if, if the effects looked rickety because it's all about just really drawing you in. Immersion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's something something like Logan's Run, which sounds, it seems like it would be a little less uh, serious, you know, of Mitch or yeah. something. Gonna be a big it's call. very stylized. It's one of those very clean kind of gleaming futures. And- yeah. I, I would long for another, what was the last, like, clean dystopia I guess the I guess technically the Matrix because the the dream world is sort of clean and everyone's in prison there. But yeah, um, well maybe Gattaca, but that wasn't very stylized. Yeah, I haven't seen Gattaca in a while. Um, you know, <laughs> how about we move on to uh, what we watched this week? Sure. Deliverance 
on deadly ground. Little children, Jackie Brown, Robocop, Hudson Hawk, Rio Bravo, Woodstock, Superbad, Carlitos Way, Drunken Master, Child's Play, JFK, blown away. What else do I have to say? We love a lot of movies. Though we did it right, I'm but we're still excited. We love a lot of movies. Now it's time to talk about the things we watch. Um, we usually start with the guests. So, uh, Greg, what did you watch this week? Well, I did watch The Dark Knight Rises, which, you know, everybody in the world did. Yeah. No surprise there. I don't know how much time we want to spend on that, partly because it is being discussed to death all over the place and partly because we have the two-year spoiler rule here. Yeah, yeah. We don't, uh, yeah. here on the Director's Club, we don't spoil any movie that hasn't been out. That it, we, don't only, we only spoil movies after they've been out for two years because we figure two years, yeah, if you don't watch it then, then, you know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> You don't deserve movies. Right. Well, you, or at least you don't deserve to... You don't deserve people to tiptoe around you. So I will say, generally, I think it's the most fun entry in the series. It has a nice, uh, real over-the-top kind of Roger Moore, James Bond thing going on, at least in the first half. Particularly with Bane. Yeah. Uh, and Bane's one. Uh, that, that opening sequence with Bane is so uh, Bond-teasing. Yeah. Yeah, I was that's I was thinking that the whole time, but it it is a little more. It's a it did like feel a little more intense, and, but I can't. It's hard for me to tell uh, whether or not because it was. I think it's like the first. I didn't see The Dark Knight on IMAX, and this was the first movie shot on IMAX that I'd seen in a proper IMAX theater. So a lot of those big action scenes were just really like they actually do shake you in a way that and I I still didn't I saw this in the uh, Cinerama which is a big screen but I yeah. still haven't seen it in a proper IMAX format um, I imagine that the uh, that maybe well I guess the aspect ratio doesn't change when they bring it to, to home video so I guess that doesn't matter but I was surprised how little the aspect ratio changing bothered me because I heard about that with The Dark Knight and I was like oh that sounds like it would just take you right out of the movie but this, but the screen's literally so large that, like, and that, like, so much of the film you can't is, take it in with your field of vision anyway. Right. The yeah, so much of the film's already in your periphery that the uh, the change in aspect ratio, like, you notice it, but it, it doesn't feel like uh, like sometimes like sometimes when you're watching old prints of movies, it you can feel a real bad reel change, or at the end of one reel, things get really. They sort of grimy and scratched, and then it, and then I, you feel the real change. Damage comes in. Yeah, and then it comes out, and you're like, "Oh, the movie just switched." I, that's what I that's what I assume that the IMAX would feel like um, with the aspect ratio, but it isn't. But yeah, that opening scene is great. Um, Bane's voice <laughs> in general and demeanor yeah. is very just like Bond villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where he got that accent. Like he he's. You know, he's, there were times when it was kind of Sean Connery, but then it would kind of f- fall out, and I w- wasn't sure what he was going for. Apparently, someone sent me a link on because on Twitter I made the joke that it was all inspired by the one line in Batman Forever where the Riddler goes, "Batman, Batman, you say," <laughs> which is what it sounded like to me. And someone goes, someone sent me a link, a, like a YouTube link, goes, "Actually, it was inspired by this," and apparently it's. There's uh, he sent me a link to like this documentary about a bo- uh, a boxer from uh, United Kingdom. I'm not sure if it was Scotland or England or what. I didn't I didn't really watch the the link, but so apparently he based it off of a a real person. Um, not that you know, not that that makes it any better or worse of a choice, but 
this is going to be another one of those things where we saw the Tom Waits video that Heath Ledger supposedly based the Joker on. Have you heard about this one? I, I heard about it. I don't think I watched it in its entirety. Um, I always thought Heath Ledger looked Joker actually seemed a lot like uh, Michael Keaton, uh, ironically enough. Yeah, ironically. But uh, yeah, apparently that video is uh, pretty not damning because it's obvious it's not a, you know it's not a knock against Heath Ledger that he found inspiration in this weird yeah, place. It's but, not like he's at fault for basing the performance on something. But, right, but it it is apparently very similar. Um, I I like Dark Knight Rises. It is way dumber than I thought it would be. It is. It's really enjoyable on a dumb action movie level, and unfortunately, I think it tried to reach further than that. And I don't think yeah. it always makes it when it goes for the big idea. Yeah, well, there's still there's that weird disconnect where it's still very grim and it's still very gritty and it's still like very dour. Um, and some of the you know, uh, you know, it's not I'm not spoiling anything to say that Bane, you know, is a terrorist who is striking terror at Gotham, and some of his terrorist acts go so far, like, um, you know, jo- in the Dark Knight, Joker blows up a mostly abandoned hospital. He, you know, he sort of makes the citizens turn against each other, but like he doesn't just sort of scorch the earth <laughs> in the way that yeah. Bane does, and it's like, and it's actually kind of. Like, I don't know if I've seen images of acts of terror that are as crazy and as, like, large and damaging as the ones... Yeah, the sheer scale of them is really impressive. And while they don't specifically show any of it, there's no way that he performed acts on that scale without killing thousands of people. Yeah, like, it's it's he's automatically, you know, committing insane mass murder. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like... To, to on a scale of which it honestly like makes like nine eleven would pale in comparison and yeah. and that sort of and you when you balance that kind of uh destruction and that and the and you know it's not portrayed as you know michael bay uh i've seen it compared to michael bay a lot and it is you know a lot more buildings exploding and stuff like that but it isn't like Michael Bay frivolous. A transformer like goes through a building, but no one feels it, and it's you know it doesn't hit any of our characters. So we're just gonna and a lot of people run out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We make sure to shoot it from the ground and show people running away from the building and stuff. But like, it is really heavy, and when you balance that with Catwoman, who <laughs> in this is not a she's not a vigilante, but yet she still has a, her own costume. Which is right. She like she's a you know again. I'm not spoiling anything. This is all you know first act stuff. But you know she she is just a cat burglar who happens to have this like leather costume that had to have been custom made for her with these sort of crazy bladed heels. Which um, you know you you forget you just you know forget the whole idea that uh, they're impractical. They're it's like again they have to be custom made and. And the fact that you know, you know, there's more gadgets and there's more humor. It's this really weird disconnect, um, which it is, and that's one of the. It's another thing that really separates this from other Nolan films. I don't remember a lot of intentional jokes being made in other Nolan films. Definitely, there, not. there's a streak of humor through this that sometimes feels like it's at odds. Like he felt like he had to inject humor in there. I don't. E- I don't even like. 
it feels like an unfocused Nolan movie, and um, I recently listened to uh, one of my favorite video game podcasts. It's called The Indoor Kids, and they they frequently have Devin Faraci of Badass Digest and Film Crit Hulk on. Um, and Film Crit Hulk was on to talk about the Bat- Batman movies and comics, and the, you does know, he it, speak in the same voice that he writes? No, no. He, they <laughs> say that he's in Bruce Banner mode because otherwise, you just it would just be very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it'd be la- it'd be loud Howard if you if, if anyone else saw the Dilbert cartoon, <laughs> it'd just be, be loud Howard. But um, and he was saying that like because he you know he clearly just from a lot of things he says and a lot of insight he has he clearly is someone who works in the industry, which is another reason he does the film Crit Hulk is because he can't you know it sort of disguises his real identity. Mm. So um. Or at least gives him plausible deniability. Uh, and he was saying that Nolan didn't really want to do a third Batman movie after Heath Ledger died because his whole idea for a third Batman movie was based around the Joker, which you can tell because there's no references to the Joker. Like, it's they literally just pretend... Like, yeah, it's that, like they wiped him from the historical slate after that. They, like, literally when another terrorist shows up and starts, you know, wrecking havoc in Gotham and publicly addressing Gotham... You know, giving them reasons for why he's wrecking havoc. No one references. Hey, didn't this happen before? Yeah, eight years this seems ago. Seems familiar. Yeah, they 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 pretend that the Dark Knight was exclusively about um, was about Two Face, <laughs> which is Harvey Dent. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, kind of crazy to me. Um, and I'll tell you the thing that really bothers me in this film. And overall, I liked it. I don't want to sound like I'm just completely kicking it in the ass. Right, but. I st- it still feels like Nolan is kind of ashamed of the material. I just, I, I'm not, sh- I, it's hard to tell where ashamed of the material starts and, um, and just not suited for the material begins. Like, True. I don't think he, you know, just the kind of stories he likes to tell, he can't have them be kind of light and fun in a way that... But it's also the fact that, for instance, the word Catwoman is never uttered. Right. Nobody calls her that. She doesn't really have cat ears. When she flips her goggles up, they kind of look like cat ears. Right. But even that seems like much more playful than anything <laughs> that you would expect mm-hmm. from Nolan. Um, there's, a, there's a great action sequence um, sort of early on in the film. I'm not going to spoil it exactly, but um, it, it, like basically uh, it involves the, you know, the police. And at one point, like the police, uh, not Commissioner Gordon, but a high-ranking police official is like, just send all the cops. And then the next shot is literally all the cops. Right. So like, it's, it's a surreal amount of cop cars on, on an empty road. And it is, it's played exactly just like a gag. Like a, uh, you know, and it's like, you don't expect a Christopher Nolan action scene to, you know, have visual gags in it the way that, say, a Richard Lester action scene would. Right. And, uh, and there's an element of the finale that, you know, I won't, obviously won't get into in detail, but it, it's, there's been a lot of talk that it's heavily reminiscent of an Adam West moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's something, there's a very specific thing, uh, very specifically a line in... Um, in the finale, the sort of the denouement after the film has sort of been wrapped up, uh, involving um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, which yes, I know exactly what you're talking I, about, and it made me roll my eyes. Yeah, I could not believe that that would exist in a Nolan movie. Number one, I didn't. I thought for sure that they were rebooting the series after this. That they made a 
um, trilogy, and it seems to sort of imply, you know, it seems to leave it more open than you would expect, and and doing it in a way that, like, explicitly people have talked about and saying, well, this would never happen in a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> Like it's, I, I'm not going to say any more than that. I may have already said uh, too much. I haven't said enough. That's me in the corner. Um, <laughs> that's, but uh, but like yes. So it feels just like Christopher Nolan just throwing shit at the wall, and so like I would say to a fault. Christopher Nolan's films in the past have been about control and about controlling the way a narrative unravels and like that sort of thing in a way that this, like, very decidedly is not. Um, right. And and I kind of wonder if maybe that's the reason it's a little more fun. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. That he just sort of abandoned control and threw caution to the wind and said, let's, let, let's go out there and just throw shit around. Yeah, like, I've been given a huge budget, you know, let's indulge some crazy ideas I have. Um, and obviously they're not Tim Burton. Like, it's not the same... It's not going to be the same thing as when Tim Burton gets a huge budget and gets to indulge his crazy ideas. It's going to mm-hmm. be more down-to-earth, but it is... Like, you feel little remnants of, apparently, Chris... Every... I, I say apparently, but every single person ever always says, oh, you know, Christopher Nolan is a big James Bond fan. And they're like, oh, Inception, that was the James Bond moment. Like, they, they, right, they yeah. like, try to... Like, people make a game of finding James Bond in Christopher Nolan's movies when... You know, just from what I know, whatever little I know of that series, like, I don't see any of it in his movies, but, like, there is a little James Bond stuff, and there's, uh, you see yeah, more... you don't have to look too hard in this one. Yeah, yeah, and the and the, the great moment in The Dark Knight when Batman sort of, uh, I, I can't even really describe, it. basically when he flips the, the, uh, the bat bike around and the, the wheel starts spinning around... Mm-hmm. That's sort of weird. Like I don't, I don't get the physics behind it, but it's like, like kind they, of they they turn to the side, right? They they sort of yeah, they sort of spin around independently of rotating, and it's like and that that was a str- sort of a crazy like what the fuck just happened moment, <laughs> and uh, in the Dark Knight, and it was like one of those great moments where just no one in the audience was expecting it or knew what happened exactly, but it came at the climax of the action scene. So ever so it was just this huge wonderful moment. Like you see that happen to the bat like like fifteen times in a row, and you just keep hearing wub 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 wub. Like it sounds like right. dubstep. Yeah, he pulls it out two or three times in this one. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like dubstep. It's a, it's kind of a crazy movie, um, and you know, and that's actually I just because film crit Hulk you know, sort of went into more detail. He wrote a really good article on the Dark Knight Rises for Badass Digest about sort of how messy it is and sort of all the problems it has thematically, or that is to say, sort of the lack of themes it has. Um, uh, You know, I do wish, if I could wish one thing for the ending, is that he would have embraced the finalness of it a little more. Yeah, which is... It it does feel at the end like they could just move on if they wanted to and make more. Which is is crazy to me, and it's... um, Especially when, like, it, to me, I went into this movie with a foregone conclusion of this would be the last film of this series and it would end in an definitive way, and it doesn't. <laughs> like, that just really right. confused me. Um, There's a finale of sorts, and if they reboot after this, it it will come off as fairly clean. But at this point, there's no reason he couldn't come back and do it again. Yeah, 
And um, but uh, what, anyway, the sort of the thrust of Film Crit Hulk's argument was that this is the worst Nolan film because it's so messy and because you can tell you know that Nolan isn't sort of it's not as uh, specific and pointed and you know made in that kind of way that Nolan makes his other films and cares about his other films. But like it, it does. Ju- it is just really damn fun and it's mm-hmm. really you know genuinely exciting and it's genuine like as silly as bane is like it, you know there's there's something about seeing a big like man like that's a you know that was the first special effect was well we need we need to find people who are so pretty that people will pay money just to watch them like just to see mm-hmm. pic- moving pictures of them and like you know, and it's the same thing. Like the 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 best special effects are just like wow that that is a huge muscly guy, <laughs> and it's and he's bracingly physical and he's really intimidating and scary despite having this crazy you know Scottish accent. And it is certainly the best one on one fight we have ever had in this series. Yeah, it's. I mean, it did. Feel, it felt a little. Maybe it's just because it seems to go again against everything that came before. It's very strange to see just a, a fist fight with Batman. Well, and you know, again, it, I, this is something I've been complaining about since 1989. They keep putting Batman in a suit that does not allow him to do proper fighting. Yeah, and this and this still felt more to me. It felt more like uh, like professional wrestling or something. Like yeah, early... it's all wide swinging punches. Yeah, exactly, and kind of slow than than anything else. They're, you know, but it is you know the fights are more exciting. I think he's better at shooting action. He's pulled the camera back so you can see what's happening. That's always a plus. Right, exactly. Um, no, I really, I I did enjoy this movie. Um, it's just like you really do have to settle in and say this is not. The previous two movies, and I like it more than Batman Begins, just because. So do I. Where did Batman Begins? I think airs on the side of being dour. This airs on the side of, you know, being fun, and I'd rather it be fun, you know, than be consistent. You know, I'd... and it does have some of the same problems with the malleability of his personal code of honor. Yeah. <laughs> like in this case, it's I'm not going to use guns, but I'll pull out this electric thing that makes you crash your motorcycle at 90 miles per hour. Yeah, that'll exactly. probably kill you, but at least I didn't shoot you. Yeah, it's it's the way. Uh, um, I'm I'm just pimping Badass Digest at this point, but Sam Strange wrote a really good uh, Sam Strange remembers on Dark Knight Rises, and he he calls it passive aggressive killing, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great term for it. Batman will passively aggressively kill you. He won't like kill you, kill you. Yeah, I will not execute this man, but I will blow up the building that you left him tied up in. Yeah. Um, no, I. I it's just you really. Yeah. It, it. I. I mean, I had been following the buzz on and everything, so I. I did go in with adjusted expectations. I. I imagine anyone who really loves the first two, you know, films, especially The Dark Knight, and went in hoping for a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy. They could only have walked away disappointed. Um, Although I think there is a certain percentage of the population that decided they loved this movie six months ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and nothing was going to hurt them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not, I mean, that's that. That feels more like. Uh, I guess they're not civilians. <laughs> <laughs> civilians is the term I use for anyone who is in in tune to the to to film in the way that you know they're just they're just going to you know. Um, I do wonder if this, if this would just be too 
too bleak and dour for the average film goer because like there is a good 45 minutes of this film that are just things getting worse and worse and things yeah, being more and more hopeless it gets really dark and really bleak and yeah and just Bruce Wayne getting more and more up you know just buried in shit so I do like wonder if people walked away and were like, oh, because even as dark as the the Dark Knight got, and as sort of as sort of you know bleak as its worldview was and everything, like you walked away saying the Joker was cool, like the Joker was fucking awesome, and you know that has this real that sort of shoots a you know a good shot of life into the film, and that's what you walk away remembering just the energy of the Joker scenes and yeah, exactly. this. <laughs> I walked away just feeling really just like wow. I just got put through the ringer. <laughs> um, you know, and good on you know. I I will never complain about a blockbuster movie being completely different from any other blockbuster movie. And this is not battle. Sh- you know, I say you know, and it is silly, and I say it gets silly, but this is not battleship. This is not. Uh, you know, no, this is a transformer. Every entry in a series having its own personality, right? You know, and that's what's kept the Alien series afloat, mm-hmm. good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this definitely has personality. I, I'm not sure how afloat the Alien series is. I stopped paying attention to box office stuff a while ago, but uh, well, Prometheus seems to have done all right, and I guess you have to consider that part of the franchise. Yeah. Yeah. As much as Ridley Scott has tried to distance himself from it. Distance himself? He's like, dude, I don't know what he thought he was, like, like he thought he was pulling wool over people's eyes saying it's not I guess so. an alien movie, and then it clearly is, at, like, not even at the end, but the, at the beginning. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I liked it, Dark Knight Rises. The only other um, movie I saw recently that I didn't get a chance to because I wasn't on the last episode of Director's Club. Um, uh, the other only really other movies I got to see were uh, Nightbreed, uh, the Cabal Cut. Have you seen Nightbreed? I I am a big fan of Nightbreed going way back. I have not seen Oh, are you? I would love to talk to you about this then because I really <laughs> hated Nightbreed. Uh, <laughs> now, mind you, I have not seen it probably over 10 years. Yeah, and and then now I should give a little history. The Cabal Cut is basically this is the story, and this does seem like the kind of story that people make up <laughs> to sort of make things more interesting because the, the story of well, we saw this lying around and we're like you know, we could probably do something with this and then Clive Barker's name attached to it and we could get money out of it. But basically the story is that the producer of Nightbreed was at Clive Barker's house and found all these old VHS tapes of the work print of Nightbreed and all this footage that, because Nightbreed was very famously sort of cut to ribbons. Um, right, yeah. Um, so, and it was sort of mismarketed uh, as being a completely different film than it was. So, of course, it tanked, and a lot of you know Clive Barker fans consider it sort of a lost movie or a lost, you know, um, you know, sort of a botched opportunity. And so uh, the producer found all these videotapes of the work print, and he, and they sort of, on his own time, he put together sort of a very rough cut of what the full, real version of the movie would be, and that's called the Cabal Cut. And he's actually, he's been shopping it around 
um, doing screenings of this, you know, very rough uh, director's cut um, uh, all across the the country, um, sort of both to you know to raise money and to sort of, but mostly to raise awareness. So if enough people start talking about it, like then, it's a disease. Yeah, <laughs> no, but if enough people start talking about it, then the studio. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, I've seen the Facebook movement. There's a lot of uh, Occupy Midian things going on. Oh, nice. Occupy Midian. Which is not at all um, diminishing what that was supposed to mean or anything. Yeah, no, of course not. You know, uh, I uh, I occupied uh, breakfast this morning. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, it, if anything, it only strengthens it, too. Okay, Morgan Creek, is that the... 20th Century Fox released it. They were the distributors. Uh, Morgan Creek was the uh, production company. But anyway, so if there's enough room, you know, if there's enough interest, then Fox will release this director's cut. Now, everything I say should be taken with a lot of salt because this is the sixth... He he told us this is the sixth draft of the restored cut, so I can only imagine what people in L.A. saw um, when it first screened. Um, And... Most of the footage was is literally taken from old VHSs that even have. You know, I, I was going to ask, what kind of shape is the extra footage in? Oh, it's ter- it's terrible it because they need the money to restore it. So, but I mean, it's watchable. You can still mostly tell what's going on. Though the problem is a lot of the scenes in Midian, the sort of monster underworld, uh, which is you know supposedly the highlight of the film because that's where all the effects are and where you get to see all the creatures. Those were right. mostly VHS, and so you don't really get to see them all that well. But, um, so, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Maybe if they tighten it up, if, you know, if, if I, uh, you know, maybe what I saw was just a really still very rough version, though. I will say, if it was that rough, then maybe they, you know, they should tighten it up before <laughs> they start screening it. But, like... Have you have you seen the original? No, and I haven't seen the original, and that's the other thing is I don't know if this how much of an improvement it was, or and it's hard for me to tell exactly what's been added because many scenes that were clearly in the original were still taken from the VHS because they went on longer in the you know work print. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's basically sort of an Avatar story or a Dances with Wolves kind of story, um, where it's about someone who. Uh, you know, gets taken into this weird, uh, you know, alien world. In this case, it's it's where all the monsters live, um, monsters of lore and mythos and stuff like that. Right. It's the it's the white man joins the natives and becomes the best of them story. Yeah, exactly. Though, I mean, th- this this film obviously, uh, luckily, gets to sort of avoid the racial component mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> of that story in a way that Dances with Wolves decidedly did not. Um, but and. Then, and all the while, there's this serial killer played by David Cronenberg, um, and he becomes obsessed with destroying Midian for no apparent reason, and then they have to defend Midian from David Cronenberg and this sort of gun-crazed sheriff. And my main problem with it is just, like, the main character is just such a lump. Like, he's just has no personality. Um, so the whole time, you're just like, he, he's like, I just feel like I don't fit in, and it turns out he's actually a monster who, I guess, I forgot about Midian. Again, it's very unclear. Well, in the original cut, I think the intent was that 
he is fooled into thinking that he's a monster. Oh, really? By David Cronenberg's character, who has committed these murders and is now trying to convince the protagonist that he's the one who did it. Wow. And trying so, to set him up for it. So the protagonist isn't a monster in the original cut? No, he goes to Midian and tells them that he is a monster and therefore belongs there, and they do end up admitting him. No, he's a he's a he's a one hundred percent monster in the Cabal cut. Um, is he? Yeah, he's he's just sort of forgotten that he's a monster, um, I suppose. So in this, uh, he you know he con- he you know several times throughout the film he transforms into his sort of monster form to fight the bad guys and stuff. And oh, he does that in the original, but only after they've initiated him. Oh, okay. So maybe I maybe I missed something. Again, the audio quality is also was just as bad as the vision, as the uh, video. So um, it's possible that I missed crucial points of dialogue. But so you're saying they sort of give him monster powers? Yeah. I I. I it's hard for me to remember the details. Yeah, I, I yeah. do specifically remember that his psychiatrist was the one who was murdering people. Yeah. No. And and his psychiatrist, played by Cronenberg, is easily the best part of the film. Um, but it's, it's just, a weird performance. It really is, and it's—I mean, it's never not distracting. Um, I obviously, though, it's—it's it's the sort of choice where it's only distracting to people who know who David Cronenberg are. Uh, I don't think regular, you know, Joes in in the audience, you know, though obviously in this audience, it's all people who know David Cronenberg are because I saw it at this sort of horror um, triple feature. Yeah, I think most of the people who would go out of their way to see Nightbreed would know who he is. Yeah, but. yeah. I'm just sort of thinking about Clive Barker's original, uh, sort of, sort of, I guess, defending Clive Barker's original choice because if this one, you know, if this wasn't such just an underground hit, you know, this wasn't just relish to relegated, I should say, to, to sort of cult status. Yeah, yeah, average I don't person know what his performance would be worth if it weren't for the novelty value of oh, it's David Cronenberg. I he, I think he's the best part of the film, but again, I think he's the only one who really gets a personality. Other than there are like some bad comic relief at Midian, and there's one monster who is just like the he's just sort of the wacky sidekick who is really annoying. Mm-hmm. And and again, like it's just I'm I'm sure so much of the appeal is just that there are so many monster effects on display. Um, oh, it is and. And, you know, admittedly, a lot of my liking of the film comes from the fact that there are so many different, really interesting monster designs. Yeah. But that does substitute for their personalities. Yeah, and that's the big problem. And also the other big problem is this being a rough cut. It was like two hours and 40 minutes, and, like, it's literally 20 minutes of setup between the time that the sheriff says, let's go, let's go to Midian and kill them, and the time they get to Midian, um, there's, it's like just 20 minutes of the monsters preparing and them preparing and them driving and the monsters just talking about nothing in particular and arguing amongst themselves, and, and at that point... It, it, it is hard for me to imagine the story supporting that kind of length. Yeah, and I there's mean... There's really not that much to it. But... and but I, the, My main... like I don't think I could enjoy this story at any length, just because like the two main characters, the you know the, the sort of the the center of all this is this love story between this sort of troubled guy uh, and and his girlfriend, who's and it's like 
and neither of them, you know, they don't have a personality among them, and it's just, uh, it's just like really just like bland actors. Who plays the the lead? My internet is not going so great, but uh, Craig Sheffer. Craig Sheffer, yeah. I don't know what he el- what else he was in, but I mean, granted. It's good casting as far as he has sort of a monster face in the way that Ron Perlman kind of has a monster face. He Although a- he's never even allowed to become as interesting a monster as the ones around him. He really just has some shit carved into his face. and Yeah. yeah. He becomes more body mod than anything. <laughs> it's like beastly. That, that- Scarification. Yeah. Uh, God, that was funny. They, re- they made a Beauty and the Beast... Where instead of like a monster as the beast, it was just a guy with a lot of body mods, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, oh, you wouldn't love me. I'm just too weird and cool. Like, you know, it's one of these instances where I like the movie, but I can't argue with anything you're saying. Yeah, it's uh, I I can't really defend it on any kind of narrative or character level. It's not deep, right? Yeah, I. There's just something about it that appeals to me, even though I understand it's it's not a traditionally well-made movie. Yeah. Now, have you read the novel Cabal? I did read it again a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it being significantly different, but then I'm probably not remembering it very well. Yeah. I should probably make an effort to see the theatrical cut, if only to actually see all the monsters in not you know. Blurry, degraded, flattering presentation. Right, yeah, but uh, and and the knowledge that it has been cut to ribbons will at least know that I won't have to endure another two hour and forty <laughs> minutes of barely anything happening. Um. Uh, yeah. So I mean, that's Nightbreed. Uh, I I can't see myself ever really liking it, but you know, good luck from them, I guess. Uh. What's the last? I'm a little afraid to rewatch it now. Yeah, uh, I it, honestly, I, I never saw Avatar, but it made me want to watch Avatar just to see like this story done by someone who like has a sense of storytelling. So you're <laughs> the guy who didn't see Avatar. I am. I'm the I'm the guy who didn't see Avatar. Uh, I didn't. It didn't really appeal to me, and everything I was hearing was that it's not a Dark Knight situation where it's great populist entertainment and it's a good movie. It's just sort of like a bunch of CGI, and it never, like, it never looked. None of the effects ever looked convincing. So I don't know. It is almost an animated film. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me, and it looked like fern, like a fern gully. Like it looked like the computer generated remake of fern gully. the resemblance between those two movies is a little frightening. Yeah. Down to plot points. It's amazing. That's funny. Now, does Tone Loke show up as a rapping iguana? Not to my knowledge. Does Robin Williams show up as a rapping bat? He wouldn't have been out of place. Yeah. (laughs) Also, did, did you, like me, only just now realize how much rapping there was in that film? Uh, yeah, I honestly had not remembered any rapping. I'm not <laughs> I forgot entirely about. Entirely sure why I saw that film. Uh, Ferngully was. You know, I I do not have the excuse that I was a child. At yeah, that. yeah, I had the I, excuse I, that I, I was really a child. Don't know what to say. And that the preview was on the Home Alone VHS tape, which I watched a million times when I was six. 
Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about this last week that there was a period where I used to go to a movie in the theater at least once a week, no matter what was playing. And I think that I was broken from that by things like Fern Gully <laughs> and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. And I just thought, well, this isn't worth it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of had to hang that up. What Do you remember the exact film that broke you? <laughs> like uh, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag may have been it. I just thought there, there's no reason I would go out of my way to see this. It was just that I, there was nothing else playing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear that excuse a lot also from people who don't have air conditioning. And I kind of understand it because I don't have air conditioning. Yeah, that almost makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's a better excuse than I just need to see something. Right. I, yeah, because one is about physical comfort and the other is about just I want a big TV for an hour, <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> Um, yeah, so let's go on to uh, talk about the director of the episode, Richard Lester. Let's do that. Born in Philadelphia in 1932, Richard Lester was a child genius who began his college career at the University of Philadelphia at the ripe old age of 15. By the time he was 18, he started his career in television, working his way from stagehand all the way to being a director of television in England. His work with Peter Sellers on the programs A Show Called Fred and Son of Fred led to him directing and writing a short film with Sellers and English comedy legend Spike Milligan entitled The Running, Jumping, Standing Still Film. Its surreal slapstick led to it becoming an underground favorite for many of England's hip, including the Beatles. So when the Beatles were asked to be in a film, Lester was the natural choice to direct. And after the release of that film, A Hard Day's Night, nothing would ever be the same for any involved. A Hard Day's Night is... Well, maybe we should just start at the beginning. This is Richard Lester inventing the music video. Yeah, and this this is why I've been particularly interested in discussing this movie with you. You're much more of an aficionado of the the art of the music video than I am. Yeah, and 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 I love you know musicals. And I was I before I rewatched this, I was beginning to wonder like, is this really groundbreaking, or was it just big because it was the Beatles? Because I was thinking like, this certainly wasn't the first musical to have a pop music star in it. Like Elvis was starred in countless films. Oh yeah, and. And so I went back and I rewatched a lot of clips from like Viva Las Vegas and Jailhouse Rock and stuff, and it's a world of difference. It is the, just the just the visual, you know, just the cinematic, uh, you know, sort of syntax is completely different. It's all those films, despite being you know rock and roll of the time, are musicals. They're musical yeah, exactly. Numbers. They're they're really following the template of the classic musicals. Yeah, they're they're shot wide. There's a lot of backup dancers. It's all about choreography and stuff. And Hard Day's Night is the exact opposite. Um, and it's it's it like it, and it is just this perfect moment where just everything like Richard Lester is the perfect director and film at the time was sort of, you know, the French New Wave had not yet, you know, entered sort of Hollywood, but it was, you know, it, it was raising stinks all across the world, and, you know, and the Beatles were raising stinks all across the world for being sort of very different, and they're sort of, they were very kind of irreverent, and even though, you know, their songs were very clean, you know, and 
and stuff like that, they were different than the Beach Boys. They felt, they didn't feel, it, it didn't feel like, the Beatles didn't feel, and I, I went back and I even watched the Beatles Anthology DVD set for this because I wanted to sort of, I think knowing sort of the... Cult- I wish I had had that on hand. Yeah, knowing I think knowing this cultural climate of of the time sort of puts this film into a much different... Con- like, this is a really entertaining movie. It's a funny comedy, and it's fast-paced, and you and I think anyone will would like it, whether or not they even like the Beatles. But, like, I was, I was going back um, recently, and I was watching, like, videos of, like, the Beach Boys and stuff, and everything feels, like, safe <laughs> and established, and, and, like, the Beatles were writing their own songs, and the Beatles were very irreverent, and the Beatles had this crazy long hair, um... And they were causing, like, literal mass hysteria. <laughs> like, there's no other way to describe... Uh, there's no other way to describe all those screaming teenagers meeting them at the airport. Than... And it makes the whole thing... Uh, it's a little difficult, I think, for a modern audience to really appreciate what that was about. It feels invented now. Yeah, absolutely. The, the girls would stand up and literally cry and scream at the sight of them. And that wasn't a thing that... Like there was a Beatles fan club that got together and said, "When we, when they get there, what you know, it it was completely like spontaneous. They were just mm-hmm. weeping at the sight. It was it was a genuine outpouring of emotion, and I I don't know why it it was that exciting. Absolutely, yeah. And it was, and it's, and then like there's something you know frightening about that to to adults <laughs> to, yeah, to exactly. see something stirring. That was, that see, was the. Uh, the heart of a lot of the criticism of them was just their fans. Yeah. Um, so it was this. It's this perfect moment where this perfect director who had established this absurd surrealist style, working with the goons and and Peter Sellers and all that, and you know, film at the where film was at the time, where the Beatles were at the time, and where you know the Beatles were in their career, and where America was. It's like. It is a singular, like, I was thinking, what, like, I, you know, a lot of films you can say, okay, well, you just sort of, like, I actually, I recently watched the Footloose remake, and there is a lot of, um, and as, you know, as dated as the premise of the Footloose it seems and stuff, there's a lot of ways you can translate it to a modern audience. There's no way to translate this. There's no, like, there's no other film, you know, you can't have Coldplay uh, running from crowds of girls. Because it's not even a matter of just how innovative the band is. It's a moment in time and a moment in the culture that's never going to be repeated. Right. And and it's and it's just a singular wonderful movie. And uh, it helps that the Beatles are extremely charming and charismatic. Yeah. Like I and they cared and they they and you can tell they're having fun. There's a lot of it's very spontaneous, which is you know something that. The faux—it's not a faux documentary because then no one really acknowledges the cameras. I, there might be a few times someone breaks the fourth wall and winks or something like that. But yeah, there's there's never a conceit that they're actually being filmed, right? But being shot very, you know, you know, being shot with, uh, you know, in black and white, so it's, you know, shots take less time to set up and mostly handheld, and you know, that sort of high contrast, sort of gritty, grainy, you know, black and white like that allows you to shoot shoot a lot of footage and to be a lot more spontaneous and you know just every part of this film there's just something happening and 
someone's making a face or, you know, George is off doing his own little bit. <laughs> like, there, maybe one of my favorite moments is, like, a clearly a part that John Lennon wanted to slip in because this is the... I'm not, I'm not as taken with sort of the John Lennon legend as some, as some people are. Um, but there's, you know, and I think... I'm more of a George guy myself. Yeah, I, I think Paul is my favorite just on the basis of the songs he wrote. But, uh, um, yeah, Beatles talk, everybody. Um, <laughs> no, but there's a, it's a perfect John Lennon moment where he, you know, he, he's being sort of faux subversive by he's sniffing his Coca-Cola. It's like, oh, he's sniffing Coke in the film. <laughs> and it's just such a, like, he's not framed that he's part of, like, he, he's sort of down at the bottom of the frame. You can barely see him. And it's this wild moment where no one scripted that. And in fact, I think, despite the fact that a famous playwright, Alan Owen, hung... He spent, according to Beatles Anthology, he spent about five days with Beatles following them around, writing you know down things they said in order to get their voice right. Apparently, by the time they got to the you know sets and everything, they just sort of threw out most of the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, John Lennon was just uh, improvising his... Little hard out, yeah. And, and he, uh, Alan Owen eventually did get nominated for a an Oscar for best screenplay, I think. For this, if, even though not that much of of what he wrote survived. That's funny. Yeah, Hard Day's Night. That and that is like this is not just a teeny bopper movie that like people were blown away by it. There isn't. It wasn't just that you know. It wasn't just that there hadn't been a concert film like this. There had been any film like this that debuted so big. Um, no, and I think what really sets it apart is that it it's the plot isn't just built around an excuse to show musical numbers. Yeah. In there, fact, there's more going on here. It's all about them being trapped in their own fame and and their attempt to escape from it. Yeah. The, I mean, it's kind of like that's definitely there and there's definitely there's there's themes of sort of being rebellious and sort of being put into boxes most pointedly. Probably, and I, but I don't, honestly, it's, it's probably the worst parts of the movie are the parts that do that the most explicitly. Like that George scene when uh, they're just like, "Oh yeah, what do you think of this fashion?" Oh, he's we tell the fashion, yeah, yeah, and he's like, "You can't tell kids what to do." And granted, this wasn't the cliche in 1964 that it was now, but oh, it was a new idea. Yeah, but at the same time, that those those parts haven't aged as well as, say, just the sheer joy of them running around in a field of a helicopter. Or, that, uh, that, to me, that's one of the great moments of freedom in any movie. Yeah, absolutely. They, they go out the fire escape and just go out and be goofy young guys in a field for a while. And and they're just... and they're, I mean, you know, you, you know, you think of some of the great photographs of famous people like throughout history. Most of the photographs are famous because of the, the subjects. Like, and they are great subjects. So there's like every time they're in screen, that's on screen, like it's inherently interesting, and you inherently want to watch them. And they're so charming, and um, you can tell Ringo <laughs> doesn't know a lot of his lines. <laughs> yeah. So they're mostly and like you you see him break you know quote unquote character every once in a while, and it's those are the best parts of the movie um, where well, and that does bring up an interesting point about the fact that they're really not playing themselves. No. They, they've each been given a very narrow personality trait that they play into, and they're actually surprisingly good at that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I wouldn't say it's super specific, but they're, they are definitely given roles, and I do wonder, 
uh, how much of that is was part of the uh, structure of the screenplay and how much of that was uh, just them sort of... I mean, John is the one who's just will not take anything seriously ever. Um, yeah, he's, he's the rebel who, who just jokes at everything. He won't take anything seriously. Yeah. What he's do you kind get? Of a natural yeah. clown. Yeah, and like yeah, you know, he's the he's the Marlon Brando, and the, what do you what do you got? You know, he's right. though there is that sort of weird, poignant moment where he has that nonsense conversation with the woman about. Oh, you look just like him. Yeah, and but like that sort of turns into something else where <laughs> he does kind of feel like kind of, kind of wounded at the end, where he yeah, where at first he's making fun of her. By saying, but he's like sort of downplaying his fame and subverting it. But then in the end, he is like sort of genuinely assaulted when he's not. He's a little insulted that she that he was able to talk her out of knowing who he was. Yeah, and that is sort of a weird, interesting moment that is well acted. That whole scene is actually really well acted. I will say that people overplay how good Ringo is. <laughs> people were people were saying all sorts of nonsense like. Uh, like the his whole scene. Um, apparently, what happened was he just was too hungover to do his scene. So Richard Lester was like, "We'll just follow you around. We'll just walk around, and we'll come up with stuff <laughs> on the spot." Um, really, his whole role consists of him having to be hangdog and picked on. Yeah, exactly. And, and he has the face for it. Um, which, uh, yeah, he really does, and he has a he has a wonderful face. And when he breaks in a smile, he gets that's always cute too. But like people were, people were like, "Oh yeah, he's the new Charlie Chaplin." Like people were going overboard with their praise of his sort of scene in which he wanders around a dam or a, a, a canal, <laughs> doing has his little conversation with the kid who's skipping school. Yeah, I like that. I do like that scene. Um, I mean, it helps that it, they do have a natural charisma, but you can tell that they're trying because we have another Beatles movie. Uh, that proves that what happens when the Beatles don't care. Yes. Um, and I think, and, you know, I, th- I think if you, you know, if you want to sort of realize how astonishing Hard Day's Night is, just watch Help, which is similarly kind of silly and quick-paced and um, and goes to real places, but, and despite... But it has no glue holding it together. Yeah, and... It's just one, non-stop it, uh, shenanigans. And, but and even worse than that, like, it's they're not engaged. Like there's not, you don't, you don't, there's not a lot of spontaneity. Um, that was the point in the Beatles career where they were just smoking pot all the time. <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney has said he now feels really sorry for Richard Lester on that movie. Yeah. And, uh, in, in the Beatles anthology, Paul McCartney was talking about the way the script was made was them going, was them like when they were talking about, Ooh, so we're making a script for a movie for your new album. What do you want to do? And it's like, well, I've never been to the Bahamas. Well, I've never been skiing. Like <laughs> he was just using the film production as an excuse to go on vacations and and a good film that does not make. Whereas Hard Day's Night, they they have not gotten you know, despite the fact that the, the annoyances of being you know of of being hounded with your fame are you know th- sprinkled throughout the film, they had not yet been jaded. Uh, and you can tell they're excited to be making a movie. And they're like, shit, Elvis made a movie. <laughs> like, I'm making a movie just like Elvis. This is crazy. And this is really at the point before they hit internationally. Like, they hadn't made their American invasion yet. Yeah. Uh, it was right around the time this film came out. It was when they would make their Ed Sullivan appearance and everything just exploded. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it had exploded. I think the Ed Sullivan happened about maybe six months before this. So, yeah, it was definitely... 
that sort of period, and it's and it's a film about that period, and um, and that sort of joy, and it's such a pure encapsulation of the joy of the the sort of the beginning of that movement, uh, you know, of the '60s and of youth of youth culture, sort of you know dominating things, and um, and I want to talk about the way Richard Lester shoots the musical numbers. Now, have you seen, uh, what's, what was the musical he did? His previous film? Yeah. Um, it was called It's Trad Dad, and it goes by the alternate title of Ring-A-Ding Rhythm. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. In America, it's Ring-A-Ding Rhythm, which is... <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I'm not... I was not able to see that one. I haven't been able to find a copy of it. No, neither was I. I found uh, clips of it, though, and it's sort of the beginning of he's definitely shooting close-ups and he's cutting more frequently um, and stuff like that, but it isn't quite where he reached with uh, Hard Day's Night. And, like, modern, yeah, people, you know, credit, oh, MTV in the 80s is was, was where people got short attention spans and everything, but the cutting is in, especially during the uh, you know, musical numbers in this is, is extremely fast and, you know, disjointed, and he's not. it's not about establishing... Um, you know, it's not about establishing a choreography or a geography or about, you know, sort of telling a story or it's, it is, it is a lot more spontaneous and abstract and strange and, um, and it's, and it's beautiful and there's so many striking images because again, they're, they're the fucking Beatles. So (laughs) you do a close... And he's able to cut to the mood of a song. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And I, 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 though, I mean, most of these songs on the soundtrack, to be fair, they're pretty much the same mood. There's not... Uh, he had because not... They wouldn't get into their experimental phase just yet. Right. Help, I mean, help, it's, there's a lot more variety. but And there's a few good numbers in help. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's a ton of good songs on the album help, but there's a few... In the film help, there's a few good numbers. But in this, again, you just see... You just see sort of... Uh, Ringo playing the drums just because he, you know, like he's done, you know, thousands of times before, and then like just there'll be a spark, and he realizes that he's on camera, and he just starts <laughs> cracking up. And there's or that a... weird little shuffle George Harrison does in the finale. Yeah, exactly. Like there's little stuff like that where they're just so excited that it's breaking, like that. That is how they break the fourth wall, and that is that's the definition of a music video where it's this fake performance, but it's supposed to sort of you know, it's supposed to feel real, and it's supposed to take the canned, well-produced sound, uh, you know, of a of an album recording, and make it seem like it's spontaneously happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think one of Richard Lester's greatest strengths when he launched into film was that he didn't go to film school. Yeah, he didn't apprentice to anybody. There was nobody ever telling him this is how you make a movie, and these are the ways you don't make a movie. Yeah, I mean, I would. So- We'll get into this a little later as we talk about some of his other films. This this film has such energy, and the and the you know and of course the subjects are so inherently interesting that it's not a problem. But I will say a lot of his other films, you can kind of tell that he never went to film school because they're kind of visually flat. Like especially mm-hmm. Three Musketeers, a lot of the way that's lit, it's just there's no, it's really it's not dynamic at all. It's just re- it's just lit. Yeah, it's just lit. It's just a stage, and it's just. Um, and he knows how to film a sequence, but when it's not, when there's not a very specific sequence, whether it's comedy or action or whatever, uh, he just sort of shoots it. Um, 
He's uh, famous for shooting incredibly quickly. Yeah, you can tell. Not, not a lot of setup time. One or two takes. That's it. We're gone. We'll, we, we'll talk about this with uh, we'll talk about this with uh, um, Robin and Marion. But you, there's yeah. a lot of. I mean, and again, it sort of it does capture a spontaneity in doing it that way in some of his fight scenes in that film. Um, but I do want to talk about like Richard Lester as a director is probably the. I'm not, I don't know if I could say the most influential director of all time because he didn't invent the close-up like D.W. Griffith did, you know? Right, yeah. He didn't invent... Or cross-cutting. Yeah, cross-cutting like Edwin S. Porter, like, but he's definitely the most uh, influential director. Like, just in terms uh, that we've ever covered on the show, like, in terms of pop culture, he shot the opening shot of Hard Day's Night, and that has had more effect than anything David Fincher has ever done that has had... <laughs> that, that, that is, that is more in the American consciousness, in the world sort of pop consciousness, than anything David, you know, David Fincher's done, than anything Woody Allen's ever done, anything like that. Um, and it's amazing to me that he doesn't come up more. Yeah. When, I, when people talk about the great influential directors or the, those great moments in film that where nothing was the same afterwards, you don't hear the name Richard Lester. Right. Um, and I think... I, I mean, to be fair, you know, it's sort of like the Halloween Black Christmas thing where Black Christmas is sort of the first slasher movie, but Halloween was the one that made everyone else make all the slasher movies. Right, whoever and, picks up the ball and runs with it yeah. gets talked about. And while I think, I really do think, like, Hard Day's Night is the first time that mass American audiences were exposed to sort of these, you know, and I and I wish I could do more to connect uh, Richard Lister French New Wave, but I must admit that I'm rather ignorant on that movement, uh, I'm not a big fan of it, to be honest. Uh, yeah, and I can't fill in your holes on that because I am shockingly ignorant as well. Yeah, jo- I mean, I, I've never liked, I've never seen a Godard movie I've liked, so it's I, I like Truffaut, but other than that, most of French New Wave I've seen has left me kind of cold and felt kind of weightless. So I'm I'm not, but I think it was you know sort of the first time mass American audiences saw that sort of thing, and but it wasn't until you know, it wasn't until like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate and stuff that that became the way Hollywood operated. Um, well, and I think it's all because they, the American audiences, had to be confronted with content that interested them. Yeah, and the Beatles were that content. Yeah, and the Beatles, and that's probably why no one talks about Richard Lester as much, despite the fact that he made Hard Day's Night, which. Is because that's the Beatles movie. That's not Richard Lester's movie, you know. <laughs> People... and, a fr- and a friend of mine said that when I said we were discussing him. Yeah, they say, he said, "Oh, a hard day's night." That's more the Beatles than him, isn't it? <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, we did. We have talked probably more about the Beatles than we have about <laughs> Richard. <laughs> True. And uh, so you can't, you know, you can't diminish what they do with it. But uh, he was certainly the number hundred percent right choice for that uh, for that film, and he. You know, and he did something that no one else did, and he, uh, and I think part of it was honestly, you know, part of it is sort of inspired by French New Wave, but also I think part of it was just the fact that these are the goddamn Beatles, so you better have a lot of close-ups of their faces, and how are you going to do a traditional music number that's mostly close-ups of faces? Like, I think a lot of it is just the fact that this film had to be a certain thing, and there were certain constraints. Constraint number one, your four main characters aren't actors, you know? Constraint number two, we have to have 13 pop songs in it. (laughs) 
And and I love that the justification for the pop songs is just little more than just like uh, Ringo's feeling sad. I'll make I'll cheer him up. Here's a song. <laughs> like yeah, that's probably the weakest transition in the movie. I'll show him. I, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's certainly the weakest justification. But I think the fact that they will make that kind of justification speaks volumes about how again how irreverent it is and. You have really bizarre sequences like John Lennon in the bathtub, <laughs> which at the time, I'm sure in the theaters, it was girl, just girls screaming because it was John Lennon with his shirt off, you know? But right. uh, but it's also, like, in retrospect, it's just, like, him doing weird, like, is he just is he pretending to be a Nazi? or like, he's, he's playing Navy in the bathtub with a hat on. <laughs> he's doing weird German voices. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, and what makes this film so wonderful is, you know... You know, it helps stay wonderful despite the fact that there's not a real strong narrative thread to 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 take you through it. Is the fact that it is only 87 minutes long, and it is extremely fast paced. And yeah, it can't possibly be a waste of your time, no matter how uninterested you might be in the subject. And in that way, it feels like a perfect encapsulation of a Beatles song of of you know in 1964, which is just a perfect sugary piece of pop that is just a really well-written, well-done, beautifully produced, you know, interesting-sounding um, song that is completely enjoyable, but is not, you know, it's not it's not Dylan. It's not, you know, even the Rolling... I think even the Rolling Stones, their songs tended to have a little more anger, a little more weight to them than, yeah. the, than the Beatles. And that's, yeah, but it's... Yeah, the film is just... A, it's a perfect representation of... Of pop music, yeah. Um, I love that. God, I, I just one of my favorite sort of five seconds of any film ever is is the uh, is all of the still photos of all the weird faces George Harrison makes. I cut to him <laughs> just making like like rapidly and crazily making weird faces, and like that is just a beautiful sequence and. Like, Richard Lester really does shoot a lot of comedy. There's a lot of gags in this film. And, I mean, the grandpa, who was huge in Eng- uh, England at the time, but... Uh, Will- yeah, Wilfred Bramley. Yeah, Brambell. Is that his name? Brambell. He was... Bram- uh, Wilfred Bramble. Yeah, he played the Red Fox role in the sitcom that was a ver- a, a remade as Sanford and Son. Right, Steptoe and Son. Yeah. where he was constantly referred to as a dirty old man. So now we get all kinds of jokes about how clean he is. I, honestly, I think it kind of plays better because that seems almost like a winking sort of just pop culture joke, but I like it better. It as is, a non- and it's, it's a piece of evidence in why I don't like pop culture references in movies yeah. because we look at this now, what, 50 years later. Well, I think in well, this... Nobody gets it. I think in this instance it plays better because it's just a non sequitur in a film full of them. Yeah, um, and it's, it works on a completely different level now. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I, I can't tell you how many uh, jokes that have been ruined for me. Um, <laughs> like, like when I was a kid and I'd watch Mel Brooks movies, and occasionally I wouldn't get jokes. I would think they're just non sequiturs, and that'd make them more funny to me. And then I'd, I'd go back and watch Young Frankenstein when I was older, and be like, "Oh, I get that. That's not as funny as I thought it was." <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Wilfred Bramble, um, the. Norm and Shake, the two sort of agents. One of them is the Brian Epstein role, but or maybe they're both trying to sort of taking the taking turns being the Brian Epstein role. But uh, they're like they're funny and they have little gags and stuff. Um, 
I mean, it is mostly the Beatles, but it's wisely not entirely the Beatles. Yeah, he surrounds him or surrounds them with really good comedic supporting actors. Yeah, who can lift them up when they can't pull it off. And also, when all else fails, like when the dialogue isn't the sharpest, you know, and it's not exactly Harold Pinter sort of witty dialogue. <laughs> And all fails. They're just talking really fast, <laughs> like so. And it's and which it, really does work. It really does. It, it comes across as much more clever than it really has any right to at times because they're just saying it so quickly, quickly and charmingly. Like they sell that shit, <laughs> and it works great. Um, uh, yeah. So, Hard Day's Night is really an incredible singular movie, and it feels like you know it is definitely not a you know documentary. It's definitely very surreal. I mean, there was no point in the Beatles' career where they were able to transport outside of trains and ask for their ball back. Uh, <laughs> that that is one of my favorite scenes as well. The, yeah, the, the part with the businessman sitting next to them, and again, it's one of those pointed. We are the youth, and and we're not listening to you anymore. Uh-huh. But, it, it, but this it, is a business. But lines like. Uh, I fought for your kind in the war. Well, I bet you're sorry you won. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... And in, in general, I like how Lester... Lester is a very, you know, not necessarily political, but at the very least, he's a very liberal uh, filmmaker. And Oh, yeah. But I like how he, you know, as opposed to, say, Oliver Stone, sort of will portray that as righteous indignation. Like, Richard Lester, he gets all of his liberalism in through, like, irreverence. Um, and he's not, he's not trying to make a big point. He's just like he's just film like he'll just make films that are pervasively liberal, and he'll make a Three Musketeers movie where literally the film is about the glory of defending the king, and he'll just mock the king throughout the whole thing. Right. He just injected this whole note of irony into it that this is a, now a movie about the rich manipulating the poor for their own ends, and how the poor just swallow it. Yeah, exactly, and and he'll do that, but he won't weigh down the film. Like I feel almost like someone like uh, shit. Who's the director of um, Anchorman and um, all of those? Will oh, Ferrell, uh, Adam McKay. Yeah, Adam McKay. Like I feel like, especially with the other guys, like Adam McKay tried to do the same thing, but <laughs> like Adam McKay is really bad at integrating politics into. Uh, into his film, like his his commentary is really unsubtle, and yeah. where it's just like, oh, this wacky comedy that was completely weightless and you know effervescent is suddenly has a message about the stock That's market just crash. It. His style of filmmaking doesn't lend itself to that because when he starts trying to put a message into it, it's like, yeah, yeah, where's the next joke? Yeah, yeah, it's it almost feels like okay, now you're setting this up for a joke, right? Because there's been because <laughs> there hasn't been a joke for a whole forty five seconds, like. <laughs> Um, whereas Richard Lester, you know, he's he's not uh, Abrams. He isn't, you know, Naked Gun. It's not gag, 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 gag. But it's just sort of a pervasive atmosphere of comedy. Where and and he, he rides a nice line where he can he can sneak a message in without and I, being really obvious about it. I think that is a good place to transition into Robin and Marion. Yes. Robin and Marion. Now, when I I contacted you because you're you're my you're my friend on Facebook, and you you know I'm I enjoy talking with you about film, and I asked you what director you'd like to cover, 
Um, and you wanted to do Richard Lester, and I was very excited because most people just pick a director who you know is from the '90s and the 2000s. Current, currently working. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, not. There's anything wrong. I loved. I loved you know talking about the Wachowskis and the and you know David Fincher and um, you know Christopher Nolan and all that. But you know we haven't done a lot of older filmmakers, and I. It's been a real joy catching up with Richard Lester, someone who I've discovered his sensibility is a lot closer to my heart than I originally thought. And so I asked you I, what two movies we should cover, because I wasn't as familiar with them. I said, one obviously should be Hard Day's Night. I said, which should the other be? And you said, Robin and Marion. And I had never heard of the film. You hadn't heard of it? No. Um, interesting. I I mean, I'll, I'll admit I'm very ignorant about his career. I, I'm not familiar with... It. I didn't think Robin and Marion had a reputation at all. Um, but... Perhaps not as much of one as it deserves. I yeah, think. absolutely. But I was skeptical because number one, um, I'm not a fan of sort of period pieces or you know things like that. Um, there are concepts, especially one that you know I'd heard Robin Marion is mostly sort of a love story, and I was like, uh, back then the concept of love is so abstract to what I consider love. Like we we had this discussion on the Jane uh, Campion episode. About, right, the pian- about the piano like so I was a little skeptical and then I saw The Three Musketeers and I absolutely loved it so I was a little less skeptical but Robin and Marion blow like really blew me away it is like it's an incredibly interesting movie and it's really heartfelt and it's really funny um, and it's and like you were saying like Richard Lester is able to walk a line um, where you care about you know, characters, while even though the world they exist in is completely ridiculous. Um, and Robin Marion, you know, it starts with gags. Uh, like, it starts with jokes about, like, it's like a close-up of a big rock of someone loading a catapult, and they keep dropping mm-hmm. the, the rock and all that, and... And uh, they launch it to no effect. Yeah, and <laughs> it just falls off to nowhere. It, it's just the most pathetic siege ever. <laughs> That's... Um, and... And and we, it's it's a very strange movie. Robin and Marion uh, almost feels like the third act of an epic film <laughs> that we it does that we didn't. I mean, obviously, as a sequel to a very well known story, it gets away with it. But there's a lot more sort of weight and weariness to Robin Hood than you would ever expect. Which is interesting. I mean, it does bank on our knowledge of and fondness for these characters that we already know. Yeah. But at the same time, it it's not the them as we remember them. Yeah, it's somehow able to simultaneously ride on the fact that we all know the Robin Hood story while completely subverting the Robin Hood story. Um, and it's a, Which is a very interesting line to walk. And we sort of begin the story in media res and we realize that... Um, and we realize, like, King Richard is a king, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that, while in other Robin Hood stories, the glory of the Crusades is the glory of the Crusades, in this film, it's the fucking Crusades. It's a horror. It's, it's a compromised piece of shit political maneuver that nobody wins at. That, that And, you know, that was just insane genocide. Um, and, you know, and they, you know, and... And yet, it's able to portray this weariness while still being very light and entertaining and fun. Um, there's uh, Robin. It 
and Robin Hood is ordered to uh, sort of kill a castle full of an old old man and sort of children because there is potential treasure in there, which he he knows for a fact there isn't, and he betrays King Richard and says, "No, I won't do it." And so he gets sentenced um, to death, but gets leniency because of his relationship. But there's a great scene before that where they're sitting in the cell and they're sort of talking about their lives. And um, in this film, Little John is played by Nicole Williamson. Nicole Williamson, Nicole. one of my favorite people. I'm not fr- I'm not familiar with him at all. Um, uh, have you seen Excalibur? No, I have not. He plays Merlin in that. Oh, interesting. And then he played Sherlock Holmes in The 7% Solution. Oh, I love The 7% Solution. He's just one of the solution. great classic European yes. actors. Yes, okay. Now I know. He's wonderful. And he talks with this just finality about their life and they're just like 40 years old that's pretty old for you know this this time that's that's old i met a king my dad never met a king and it's like a really poignant cataloging of one's life in the middle like at the start of a film they you're like wow this is they're really at the end this is not an adventure film this isn't just robin hood old you know right um, and they have a gr- uh, Sean Connery as Robin. It's all about looking back on your life, saying, "I have done what should be considered great things, but what do I have for it?" Yeah, um, and you know, Sean Connery and Nicole uh, Nicole is have great chemistry, um, and so it's really fun to watch them. And you sort of see him catching up with all of his old friends, and it does just feel like the movie starts. Feel, and it already feels like a coda, and that's sort of a really impressive feat to feel like it's to start a film off, feel like it's wrapping something up, and not be lost by it, and not be uh, and and not be like, well, I don't know these characters, so I don't care, and because it's not like I have a natural like, oh, if it's Robin Hood, I care. It's not, you know, I didn't grow up just liking everything that was Robin Hood, you know. Um, and two, I, you don't even have to, right? Because there's the the scene where he's reunited with his old compatriots. It, um, is it Will who starts singing a song about the things that they've done? And Sean Connery's line is, "But we didn't do them." Yeah. So right there, they're already pulling it away from you. Yeah, and the, just, the legend was created by the people who needed it. And these people really just went along for the ride. And and the way he tells the story of an old washed-up Robin Hood, you know, you know what the one thing that got away from me. After, in all of my adventures and everything, it was Marion, and so it's the story of an old, washed-up Robin Hood pursuing a lost love. But it also simultaneously, just in you know, really well-written, clever dialogue, it was written by uh, James Goldman, uh, who wrote the line in the winter. So that <laughs> that yeah. that right there will explain it. Line in the winter is another one of those incredible movies where every line has like three meanings and stuff, and he's able to say so much with so little um and i would say he like i wouldn't say the writing in robin and marion is as good as line in the winter i would say that very few films have writing as good as the line in the winter um but robin and marion like you find out the whole story of robin hood as he's as you're finding out the current story there's no flashback there's no there's no moment where they look around the fire and then it cuts to him um like to a key moment between him and marion they, like Richard Lester just has faith in the material and in the actors that 
the moment though these two people met, these people who who are at the end of a story that you didn't get to see the first two thirds of, um, the moment they meet, you're going to feel their history, and you totally do. Yeah, the the writing totally does surpass what it needed to be. Especially yeah. given what the film was marketed as, as a period romance, which drove Richard Lester up the wall, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, the original is... title was The Death of Robin Hood, and, oh. and that was what he was making. To be fair, I think it's an incredibly romantic movie. I mean, we'll get to the end in a little bit, but I think it's for a movie about a time where romance was about seeing someone once and then declaring your undying love and then basically love was just a a new word for lust yeah um you know i'm I'm not i'm not a historian so i'm i am basing all this based off of films that take place in the period but still like you don't expect them to have that kind of weighty conversation about wow you really hurt me like she said Mm -hmm. there's that great moment because yes he you know she she plays like she doesn't care about him anymore and she's trying to she's still very angry at him um when when he when she first sees him um so she he's trying to save her from sheriff nottingham and he he knocks her out just to get her away (laughs) and And the sheriff of nottingham recognizes him more quickly than she does seems happier to see him that's, I mean, I want to get to that in a second, but the, what I was talking about is the, the great line. She's like, you knocked my tooth loose. And he goes, and he's like, I always try to help, and it always just seems like I'm hurting you. Like, Yeah, I never mean to hurt you, but it's all I ever do. Yeah, that's the that's such a, I never mean to hurt you, but it's all I ever do is such a great line. And it, like, it's amazing. In one sentence, you feel the weight of an entire relationship. And it's not just a catching up. It's not just, you know, weak and... Uh, and and sort of obligatory, like it. It really is insightful. Um, we can't pick up where we left off. Yeah, exactly. And you know, any attempts to will be folly. And but I want to talk about the sheriff of Nottingham because number one, he has maybe before the climax of the film where he and Robin Hood sort of duel, like he has maybe five scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you feel his history just as strongly. As Robin Hood's uh, and, and, I, and Marion's. I love Robert Shaw in this movie. Oh. <laughs> I was about to say he is always going to be remembered as Quint from Jaws, but for me, this this is the Robert Shaw performance. I, he does so much with so few scenes. I can't decide if I like him in this um, Jaws or Taking the Pelham One Two Three best. I think he's so great in all three, and I bet as I find out more of his work, I'll add things to that list. But. Um, <laughs> Like he, I was I was about to say like when you cast Sean Connery as Robin Hood, um, and you're going to introduce the Sheriff of Nottingham now and like the only other Robin Hood uh, film that I'm really into is the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, um, you know the Michael. It's Curtis. one of the few that's actually worth watching. Oh, it's wonder. It's and it's a delight, and it's completely it's very different from this. It's completely you know light and just fun and adventurous and all that. But um, in that film, like. Robin Hood is kind of perfect and flawless, mm-hmm. and like it is a story of good versus evil, right? And I mean, it's it's Errol Flynn, and he's so compelling, he's so charming that you go with it. But you never feel like the Sheriff of Nottingham is ever a real threat, um, you know. No matter how much Robin Hood is outnumbered or anything, uh, and so I was sort of worried that we would see the Sheriff of Nottingham, and it would be, and it would 
feel weightless because we have no history. <laughs> and I was gonna, and mm-hmm. you can either dedicate a lot of time establishing uh, his history with Robin Hood, or you can cast Robert Shaw, who has <laughs> who is an act is the kind of actor who just has history on his face, like. He doesn't. You don't know anything about his past in Jaws, but the second he appears, you're like, "Oh, that's a guy who's been through shit." Yeah, you know exactly who that is. You know, in taking the Pelham one, two, three, you kind of root for him because you feel like that maybe this is his last job and maybe this is going to be it for him. And like, and you can tell that he's a professional. He's been through this a million times, despite the fact you know zero about his character. Um, like, he just has history written on his face. Um, and there are just a few key lines about where he is, is sort of writing off any... I can't remember the character's name, but his sort of second-in-command is like, oh, I'll find him in the forest. That's not a problem. And, he, and he's just like... Oh, That's, the knight Sir, Sir Ranulf? Yeah, there you go. And he's... And... and uh, <laughs> I'm just like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> All I get to... I don't even see them. I just see arrows in my men's backs. Like... Again, there's a million ways you can write. You could write a line of dialogue giving a piece of information that I've tried and failed in the past. And a lot of hack writers would just say, I've tried many times and they've all failed. Or I've made many attempts and they've all failed. They tried to do something like that. But, he, they, but um, you know, James Coltman went for, the, went for the most weighty way to say it, which is, all I see is men's errors in my backs. Robert, like, there, right there. The character has been through shit. And we touched on that with the the hurting you line that he just finds ways to illustrate what he wants to say without ever coming out and saying it directly, which is that screenwriting. Yeah, and it's the kind of deft storytelling like that you just, um, I mean, not that Richard Lester writes his you know all of his scripts, but um, like it's not the kind of thing you expect from a Richard Lester movie. You expect things to be more of a hangout film where things just kind of happen and. Like I, uh, especially you know something like Three Musketeers, it's not you know it's not a very tense film. There's just a lot of scenes where things happen because it would be fun to have a scene where the Three Musketeers all steal food and pretend to be sword fighting. Um, and stuff right. like it's that. really affected his critical reception, especially like this movie. A lot of the reception was, well, it's not very funny. <laughs> yeah, um, and but and I, I've seen people complain that oh, it has humor in it, like. I, one of the things uh, you know, you want to take this back to the the Batman movies. Like this is this is the way to tell a story in which um, you have a warrior and he is questioning his you know he's questioning what he's done. He's questioning his history and he's questioning you know how he has spent his life. Like that is the plot of the Dark Knight, and you don't and need his, to, and his body is falling apart on him. And- yeah, and you don't need and you don't need to have really intense scenes where someone's just looking into darkness and being very dour to do it. You you know, you just have to have faith in an actor's ability to portray it. Um, and this film has a to- has a tone that is not, you know, very dark and it's not very serious. It has the tone of, you know, it's not it's not quite the three musketeers, but it does have the tone of an adventure movie. The scenes Yeah, it's light and it moves along and yeah, there's one scene that I particularly love. That's the old men getting out of bed scene. Oh god, where they where they all wake up in the forest and they're creaky and they have trouble getting off the ground. You know what's, you know what's funny? I I didn't. I was that scene. I was thinking. I was like, what is the point of this? And and you just now said the old man getting out of bed scene, and I realized the point of it. <laughs> like all I had to you know, you just like 
what is happening right now? Oh, that's what the movie is about. And you can say that at any point in time, because the film is just really just a solid, like well-told story with little diversion and little wasted time and wasted effort. If anything, um, just the fact that it feels like the conclusion of such a large story and the fact that it's only 100 minutes long, it almost... I was like, really? We're at the ending already? Like... Mm -hmm. It feels like the end of an epic that never happened. But I mean, that's that's what they tell you. How do how do you write a script? You start a scene as late as you possibly can, and you end the scene as early as you can, and get out before they're done talking. Right, exactly. And this is this is that taken in terms of a whole story. How do you tell the story of Robin Hood? Well, you skip all the parts where he's Robin Hood, and you just skip to the end, and we talk about what that meant. <laughs> like that's economic. That's economic storytelling, but. It's not just in the service of an adventure that moves from set piece to set piece. It's in the service of real character work. And this is, I mean, I'm not super familiar with Sean Connery's uh, sort of work pre, uh, like in between Bond and... Pre-Bond, yeah. I was, I'm from, sort of familiar with him in like Goldfinger and stuff. And I'm familiar with him sort of in the 80s and early 90s when up to like The Rock when he was appearing in sort of stuff as a badass all the time and people are like, oh, Sean Connery, that's a badass. He's, and, he's the old man who kicks ass. Yeah. Um, so, But this is the best I've seen him. Yeah, this is my favorite Sean Connery performance. He's, he's just so skilled here. There's, a, like, and there's just so many wonderful tiny moments, like uh, when he climb, when they first get into Sherwood Forest and he, and like, the first part where they're like, yeah, I really recognize this place, he climbs in a tree there's this look that spreads across his face for about like four seconds as he finds his old horn in the tree. And of course he blows it and it doesn't work right because it's old and, and decrepit just like rocks and yeah, just like everything else, like just like everything else in the movie. It's it's, it looks the same, but it isn't the same. Like you, he isn't, he feels like Robin hood, but he isn't Robin hood anymore. And when we get our first big action scene where he and Nicole Williamson have to climb over a gate yeah. And you're really watching two old men try to recapture their youth, um, struggling to get up a wall. I would say that, I mean, maybe, again, this is just the fact that I watch, you know, movies with sword fighting nowadays are all come from the uh, Crouching Tiger slash Episode One Phantom Menace mm-hmm. sort of thing, where it's all about, it's all about the uh, style of sword fighting, and it's not about telling a story in the scene or the set piece, it's all about how spectacular can we make it, and how, you know, how crazy can we make it, and can someone dive, and can the swords go faster, and in this, um, and in, uh, I would say, like, Three Musketeers, uh, Richard Lester's really good at telling a story through an action scene. Yeah, the story never stops for a sword fight. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. The story, it doesn't stop for a set piece. It isn't... And these fights are, they're brutal and ugly, yeah, they're, I love how ugly his fighting is. And again, I think a lot of that is the fact that he won't let them do it over and over again until they until the swing looks right. There's a part at the end of the, the climax where the um, Sheriff of Nottingham's army is attacking the forest, and there's this very long shot where you can, you can tell what the choreography was supposed to be, where a guy grabs a mace out of someone's hand and then, and then pulls him off a horse and then kills him with the mace. And you can sort of just the way it's framed you can uh, and the way that the actor is trying to do it you can tell what was supposed to happen but what happens is 
the, the, the mace gets like stuck in the guy's hand as he falls off, and then it falls somewhere else, and the guy has to walk over and pick it up, and then he has to walk back, kick the guy, and then hit him. And, and then there's a moment where the chain and the mace gets tangled around an axe, and yeah, Williamson and, has to unwind it before you can swing it. He yeah, kept that. Yeah, and 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 I I mean because that is also the theme of the film is that things aren't as smooth and exciting as they used to be. It's hard to tell what was just a happy accident and what was just Richard Lester, you know, what was purposeful. But um, there, there's just wonderful moments like that. That I mean, this you know, it doesn't make the fight scenes any less exciting. Be, you know. Because they're still, you know, they're exciting because they're characters you care about, you know. And there's so much weight to yeah. that final duel. At this point, it's like Robin is trying to kill the one man who understands him. Yeah, and it's it's just mind blowing to me that that can hold so much weight when, again, we barely get to see the sheriff of Nottingham, and when he, we see him, he's mostly driving the plot forward. We don't see scenes where he's eating dinner and talking about his. You know, previous exploits. He's not. We don't have scenes where he's just reminiscing. We never even are told his name. That's true. Well, I think I think the king, uh, played by Ian Holm, refers to the sheriff of Nottingham. So, and they say the sheriff. But yeah, you're right. We don't. No, you're right. We don't hear his actual name. Um, we don't know if he's ever had a family, or you know, none of that is necessary. Yeah, and, uh, though I think the implication is that he did it because this is what he does. Yeah. Uh, now, um, the ending is after Robin. This is because I really was enjoying the film, um, but this ending sort of threw me for a loop, and actually, it did move me to tears because it's like a really romantic uh, moment. I th- it does that to me every time. Yeah, and I know what's coming. Yeah, I, I, and I, I didn't know what was. Not only did I not know what was coming, I didn't. I didn't get it at first um, until what ha- okay so what happens is um, Robin kills the sheriff of Nottingham but is mortally wounded in the process and Marion and little John you know uh, bring him to their hut and she says she has medicine for them that which take the pain away yeah which by the way she pours from the same thing that she was about to pour uh you know, she was about to when when we first see her, she gets interrupted by Robin Hood shouting. Right, she's helping an old woman and telling her the same thing. This will help with the pain. Yeah, exactly, and it's and that's a, such a great moment where you know only in retrospect, wow, that adds a lot to Marion's character. Like she isn't mm-hmm. just some, you know, she isn't just some scorned lover who was holding a grudge, or you know who. Uh, or who who just is holding a torch for this guy? She's someone who's been through a whole lot too, and you know has seen things that no one should see and done things that no one should have to and do. She and the sheriff have both moved on with their lives and tried to make something of them. But and, and I think they think they have, and then the appearance of Robin Hood proves to them that they have not. Yeah, it just snaps everybody back into their old ways. Yeah, and there's this and. Again, it's just this finality throughout the whole thing. Not just in the end, but just the whole thing. But anyway, so she... It is poison. um, And she pours a cup of the poison. um, And she drinks it herself. And then she feeds it to uh, Robin Hood. And she makes little John leave to say, look, watch. Um, And I was like, why did she poison him? I guess, like, like... At first, I just thought it was 
just euthanasia. Like she knew he was going to die, so she made it quicker. And I was like, that's kind of a weird way to end the movie. And then there's that great line, like, I'm never going to have a day like this again, will I? And I just immediately tears started pouring out of my eyes, like, oh, shit. Like, Mary... And, and, you know, I can't with full confidence still say that I can really explain to anybody why she does what she does. I, I think... No, I... I think she I think she articulates it well. And it makes sense in context. But it, 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 it's hard to justify to someone who hasn't seen the movie, but yeah. what it is is the whole time she wants... She doesn't. She's like. She is not able to uh, accept that Robin Hood is not able to accept that the past is gone, and she still wants him to go away with her. She wants to run away with him. She wants. Let's just be done with the killing. We don't need that anymore. We have each other. This is the happy ending, and he's and he, you know. And why did you do it? Well, I just I did, you know. And that's this is what I do. Um, uh, I feel like it's like she's she's ready to grow old. Yeah, but and he is not, and there is that struggle between them throughout the whole thing, and she feels left out when he's talking about when the sheriff of Nottingham sort of assembles his army outside the forest, and she's and he's telling everyone else the plans, he's not telling her plans, and I think yes, you didn't ask my opinion, right? I think her feeding him the poison is her saying, um, is her saying, I accept you, I like. I accept that you are not going to be what I wanted you to be, but I still love you. And that it's in, it's, um, like, I'm actually kind of getting choked up right now. <laughs> Cause it's no, it's really moving. And it's a, it's the kind of thing that I think they, you want a sort of a, a contemporary analog that they sort of tried to do. And not as well. I don't think with leaving Las Vegas, that moment where, she buys him, uh, where Elizabeth Shue buys Nicolas Cage a present, and it's a flask. And she's like, I'm not going to stop you from drinking yourself to death. Um, <laughs> I don't think that movie is nearly as moving, but, um, like, that is just, that is what love is. <laughs> love is like, oh, you're broken. You're, <laughs> because you're human, you are cr- incredibly flawed, and I. In the only, and loving you means loving you and loving that you're flawed and accepting you and this is how you want to do it then you know if it be your will and it will be done and and earlier on she has a line where she says I will do anything for you but mourn for you yeah oh. and I, I think that kind of gets to the heart of why she's doing this she she doesn't want to watch him continue to recapture his youth, continue to lead people to their deaths, possibly get killed himself. He's just going to be less and less every time he does this. Yeah, and oh God, it's really moving. Um, it's and like that is that to me is for a film that you know. Um, is not traditionally the romantic, um, you know, the uh, romantic period piece that so many romantic period pieces are. Like, that to me is one of the most romantic things in any movie I've ever seen. And it's, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I, love the, I love the final shot where Robin Hood says, just bury us next to wherever this arrow lands. 
and he shoots an arrow out the window. And oh, we, that's amazing. And, and we you never, never see, see it, it land. Down. Of course it doesn't. And because he's just going to live on. Like, he's, that's, and, oh, man, it's such a perfect visual because you see it, like, you never, the, the arrow never leaves the frame, but it never, um, it doesn't completely vanish either. Like, it, it doesn't, and you just see it going on and on and on. It's such a incredible last shot. And it is like that that moment um like changes the film completely for me, where it was sort of before it felt like um sort of maybe like a proto unforgiven kind of a story, like that to me made it really about the characters and not just about what it means. Like not what Robin Hood means as a as a symbol. You know, not this isn't you know, we're not subverting the myth of Robin Hood. We're we're making him a full human and that's the funny line it writes is that it really never denigrates the legend at all or or questions why anybody yeah, would want it but it does subvert it substantially yeah. um and it's yeah it's incredible uh it's really an incredible film and in fact i didn't realize how incredible it was until i began talking about it just now <laughs> like like that that ending had me gobsmacked but like the whole film is really perfect and in a way that I had only seen it once before. Yeah. And I remembered it as being a good movie. I was looking forward to rewatching it, but I I watched it twice to prepare for this and yeah, I was really blown away by how uh I didn't appreciate it nearly as much as it deserved. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 in and it's perfect uh, in a way that you know, you could pointedly say Richard Lester movies are not like the appeal of a lot of Richard Lester movies is that they're messy and spontaneous and weird and they have weird, you know, rough edges and stuff. Um, and yet this, this, it's sort of, you know, I feel Richard Lester probably peaked here. This is where he made the ultimate Richard Lester movie. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree. I guess he made the ultimate Richard Lester movie for the second time because it'd be hard to say that Hard Day's Night is not the ultimate Richard Lester movie. <laughs> But just a different side. Maybe that of him. was the ultimate young Richard Lester movie. Right, exactly. I think I think that yeah. Um Right. It, it one was the ultimate sort of Richard Lester movie about this one side of him and and this is sort of this other side and Oh man, like It was funny to me that he fought back against the the romantic elements of this film. He didn't like the marketing that leaned on that. He didn't like the posters, he didn't like the title change. But, it does, but I feel like I don't think they betrayed the film. No, I don't. Like, maybe this is, like, the title change and the marketing and all that does... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> West Side of Chicago, everybody. Uh, gonna be hearing that all night. Um, no, I think... Um, I think it might just be, like, this is a more subtle and a more... Like, this is not... I don't... Again, I think Lion in the Winter is one of the greatest uh, scripts ever written. Um, and, oh, yeah. But this is a film of that level, like a masterpiece. And to market it as, you know, more romantic fun from the director. Uh, was this before or after? I think this was before Three Musketeers? It was after. Uh, Three Musketeers was like 73, 74. Yeah. So like, this was 76. So there, and Three Musketeers was fairly successful for what it was. Right. Like, that's a pretty well known and. And important 
you know, movie. And that, so it's, in it's, fact, it, when you say Richard Lester to most people, you're you're going to get the Beatles and the Musketeers. Right. So to say that this is another fun adventure from you know romantic period piece from the director of Three Musketeers, like that's really selling it short. And maybe he just felt like he had captured something that he, you know, <laughs> much like Robin Hood, he just, I'm never going to have a film like this again, am I? <laughs> which is, which yeah, is, it's almost a shame this wasn't his, his last film. It's almost a shame. It's such a grace note to go out on. D- Dear Richard Lester, you should have poisoned yourself in 1977. <laughs> Love Greg David and Patrick Ball. <laughs> oh, that's pretty aggressive. I don't think he should have poisoned himself because he did some other interesting films. Um, oh, Definitely. I think maybe we should move on and talk about those, uh, a couple other films. I, I definitely want to talk about... I, I've talked a little bit about Three Musketeers, so I don't have a ton more to say, but... It I, is one of my favorite movies of it, all time. It's, I have rewatched it so many times. Yeah, it's wonderful, and Michael York is wonderful in it. And, um, and he, It is one of the few times I've really liked Charlton Heston. Maybe he needed to be a bad guy more often. <laughs> he needed to be a bad guy more often, and he also needed to just be an inherently ridiculous casting choice. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> like, that's it. Like, Charlton Heston as Cardinal Richelieu sounds like a joke. Like, it sounds like a sounds like a, uh, a gag that would be at the end of a Monty Python sketch about film, you know? <laughs> like, it just sounds like a, like a silly, silly, silly idea. And then seeing Charlton Heston dressed as a cardinal is a silly thing. Um, but Oliver Reed is incredible um, in Three Musketeers. I fucking adore Oliver Reed in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I love, again, that he sort of subverted the Three Musketeers to be very working class and very irreverent. They are like they literally are kind of like the Beatles. Like there's not a ton of difference between the Three Musketeers plus Michael York and the Beatles in Help. Like they're just sort of wandering around, being irreverent, and uh, like that great fake fight scene where they're stealing all the food. It's just stealing a, food. Yeah, it's a gloriously like a like what a wonderful way to both to show their character is to simultaneously show off their skills. As, as sword fighters and they're sort of at sleight of hand and all and you know just how skilled they are and then to also show off how they're just kind of scoundrels who will do whatever yeah his refusal to ever allow them to be noble heroic types of characters that they're always in it for the money yeah um, they, they they did you watch the uh, the four musketeers I didn't I didn't realize that he had shot them like so similar that even I don't know if this was I would be surprised if this was in the theatrical cut, but on the DVD I watched of The Three Musketeers, it ends with, see the thrilling conclusion in The Four Musketeers, and it shows right. clips from that movie the same way that, like, Matrix uh, Reloaded shows clips from Matrix Revolutions. And there was a lawsuit over it. The, the actors had been contracted for one film, and when they found out it was two, they went on a rampage. <laughs> well, they must have made but, out... But The Four Musketeers goes to a... a a somewhat darker place. It's it's not as much fun intentionally. Yeah, it really just splits the novel into two parts, and the last half of the novel is just a darker story. Really? Well, maybe it's just like a Robin and Marion, where the best way to tell the story is to not tell the whole story. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe the best way to tell the Three Musketeers is to cut out the end. <laughs> um, but uh, I love I love Michael. I love that like parts of it literally just do play out like comic sketches. Just, you know, this is a this is a film with a story and with a plot that drives it. But there are parts where it's just Michael York being cruel to his servant, 
Or yeah, there are scenes you could pull out and present as a comic short. Yeah, it, like everything between him and uh, Raquel Welch is just like I've never watched Legs before, and she's like, "I hear you. You should start at the top." It's just yeah. like, oh, it's a great dirty joke. I love it. <laughs> um, and and this was a first screenplay, uh, George MacDonald Fraser. Oh yeah, what did he did first he... screenplay ever he wrote? Uh, he was famous for having written the. Uh, the Flashman novels, which uh, Richard Lester did end up adapting one of them. Now, was that, was that Juggernaut? Or no, Royal Flash, uh, okay. Royal Flash, yeah. Not nearly as good as the Musketeers films, but... Um, what was... I'm sorry. Uh, did he do any other screenplays? Fraser? Yeah. Oh, oh it says here he, he wrote Octopussy and <laughs> read Sonya. Are you kidding? Nope. <laughs> Oh, that's that's a fall from grace. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, oh my god! Oh man, that's funny. Um, so yeah, I love, I do really love the Free Musketeers, and it is, you know, and part of my fear was that I'm not super familiar with the Dumas novel, so I, and I, I could not tell you where it departs from it and where it. Uh, and how it subverts it in any way, but it doesn't... I haven't read it either. I've been told it's, uh, in the particulars of the plot, it's pretty faithful. Yeah. Um, But I, uh, yeah, but you don't need, the good thing about this film is it does work on its own. You don't need to. Whereas a lot of adaptations of novels, um, especially from that time period, they're like, well, we got to include this part because it's the big part of the novel, and then it ends up sort of rushing through story because, you know, you can tell a lot more story with a novel than you can with a film. Well, and it's it's kind of epidemic now in terms of when they adapt novels. It's really just uh, visual cliff notes of the novel, and you go see something like The Hunger Games and go, "Well, I don't get this or this," and yeah. people will tell you, "Oh, you have to have read the book." Harry Potter well, I movies again. I, I should not be required to study. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't study. Well, no wonder you didn't pass the test of liking right. Hunger Games. Uh, I talked about Hunger Games on an episode of the Cinecast, and I actually found that the reverse hat the. Uh, there was actually some reverse benefits to not reading the book because the film is so rushed and it does so little to really establish what's going on that that first camera push into the elevator as she steps on, like at that moment I realized I had no idea what the Hunger Games were like and I was like totally fucking scared for her <laughs> because I'm, cause my, just my imagination was filling in. Like I don't even know what that's going to bring her to or like what will happen when she goes in there. It's just a very clear visual uh, representation of this, you go in here and then everything else changes. Um, so that actually worked in its favor, but yeah, I'm not a fan of the, uh, and one of the reasons I'm a little skeptical about the much ballyhooed uh, Cloud Atlas uh, adaptation by the Wachowskis, because um, they released a very long trailer. Um, yeah, I saw it the but other day. the film, like there are so many stories simultaneously going on that it, you know we're in the book that it seems like in order to get that into a film that you have to not be able to be invested in any one of them. Um, it felt like this could be genius or it could be a complete yeah, mess. Yeah, I'm really hoping for the latter. I do like the Wachowskis a lot, um, and I think they are generally good filmmakers. Um, other than when they get handed sackfuls of money to direct sequels to films that don't need sequels. <laughs> um, I think they generally have good taste uh, in projects that they have started. I mean, uh, Bound, Matrix, and Speed Racer 
or I think they're three for three so far. As, yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, I'm hoping for the best for that. But yeah, uh, it is one of the reasons I'm a little more reserved in my enthusiasm for that uh, film. Uh, so I want, did you see any of Lester's other 60s work? I, I started watching uh, How I Won the War, but there was no subtitles, and <laughs> I already yeah, have I poor... I have a problem with that. Yeah, I have, I have pretty poor hearing in general, and then when you add in the fact that it, that movie is just 90% like thick accents, fast talking, and jargon, it was it was just like the... Uh, like, are you familiar with the, the Monty Python sketch, the RAF banter? Yes. <laughs> Where it's just Eric Idle runs and he's like, triple bird the dog, you flip it up, tend to how'd your father, and it's like nothing, he's just saying nonsense. Like that's nobody the, understands what he's saying. Yeah, that's the whole film for me. So I, I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed how, you know, I enjoyed what it was doing structurally and how it was jumping along and breaking the fourth wall. It seemed like a very fun film, but... I watched it for the first time for this, and I suspect that it's a brilliant film that I didn't get. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to watch it again. Because yeah. I think there's there's probably something in there that I just wasn't seeing. I was very confused. I had to go look on the internet for what did this mean? Yeah. What was what was the what was the actual story? Um, actually, I would like to read a uh, email we got from uh, Jason Weinberg, who I'm friends with on uh, Facebook, who's a big fan of Richard Lester, and he a huge fan of How I Won the War. Um, he said How I Won the War remains my favorite of his. With Juggernaut coming in second and the bed sitting room in third place, I haven't seen either Juggernaut or the bed sitting room. Um, I saw both of those. Juggernaut is actually very impressive. Jay Cheel of uh, a film junk recommended Juggernaut for me, but I didn't. Uh, my internet connection is very bad, so even though it was on Netflix Instant, I didn't get a chance to watch it. Um, but uh, Jason Weinberg continues. He says. Each film seems to be a commentary on war, but never seems to be overly serious to the point where entertainment value is lost. My appreciation of his work appreciation of his work comes from this wonderful marriage of British humor and political satire, without always calling attention to the latter in a way that is obvious. Sure, is he staunch, sure he is staunchly liberal, but he infuses political stance with a simultaneously mocking tone, along with admirable respect. Yet it's easy to watch his films as high-energy laugh riots with style and substance of plenty. Um, so then he. he yeah, like we were saying, it's it's very subversive and just irreverent as opposed to like very pointed. And I'm trying to tell you something. This is what I mean. Um, he went on. Uh, Jason Weinberg goes on to talk about Hard Day's Night. Uh, it's good. E- good email. I don't. We don't have time to read it. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Jason, <laughs> for sending me the email. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it's very good. Yeah. No. The uh, the bed sitting room is another one I really wanted to see. The Bed Sitting Room is a film that caused Lester to go into career hiding for four years. He didn't work after that. Wow, was it that? Um, was it was it... really badly received. Oh, was it? Was it, was it is it... an extremely weird movie. Was it, it? It it seems a little provocative. Like this seems like the most pointed. It seems like just from reading the synopsis, it seems like the most pointedly uh, like mess. Not necessarily message driven, but most pointedly satirical. Of his. Yeah, it's it's basically about the last British survivors of a nuclear war, and yeah. they live in this complete wasteland of uh, hills made entirely of shoes, and living in decommissioned trains, and and they start to uh, mutate into things like dressing cupboards, and really, it, it's it's just a very very strange film. Oh, that's great. No, what's crazy to me is Richard Lester is American. Yes, um, and yet his but, films are so distinctly Brit- British. Did he? Did he? Is he an expatriate, or did he just work? Or is he, he is, just like he moved to 
Britain pretty early on. I believe in his 20s, he was working at the BBC. Mm-hmm. And he just, he very rarely ever went back to the United States when he had a, a project like Petulia. He would, he would run back. He went to San Francisco to film that. But for the most part, yeah, he considers himself a part of British culture, and he has been praised as really getting British culture more than a lot of native filmmakers did. Yeah. Um, he, seems, he seems a little bit like Terry Gilliam in that respect. Yeah, a lot. Though Terry Gilliam, his, his work feels more American to me, um, at least his 90s work. Like, obviously, Brazil is incredibly British, but... Um, his his '90s stuff like Twelve Monkeys feels very distinctly American to me, and uh, you know, obviously, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is yeah. <laughs> is is not a British film. Um, now, I want to I want to do want to talk briefly about Superman three. <laughs> if you will, I know, dude. I know you've been waiting because <laughs> this is such a misunderstood movie, <laughs> and I just I feel so bad people punching it. Um, I've I've literally been banned from message boards for defending Superman three. <laughs> um, I, Superman three is a comedy, like like most Richard Lester movies, and I think it's a funny one. Like it's silly, but I don't think it's too stupid to to not like. Again, uh, we we've talked before about the fine line between silly and stupid, and how how his work in the eighties. You know, seems to be you know be teetering dangerously on the stupid side, but like I, I mean, number one, you have Christopher Reeves, who's just a perfect Superman, um, and, and he does some great work in three. He's he's incredible in three. Um, you know, there's a lot of been about a lot of you know. Uh, Devin Ferracci wrote an article sort of defending the evil Peter Parker in in Spider Man three. And I think it's the, pretty much the exact... Like, what Raimi did within that film is the exact same thing as what Lester did in Superman 3, where what does an what does an evil Superman do? He straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Like that <laughs> he's is, just an asshole. Yeah. It's really... He's, 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 not, he's not a supervillain. He's just a dick. <laughs> and he's like... And it's like literally just like, what, what's the worst thing Clark Kent can think of? What if I was just impolite? <laughs> you know? And, um... Like, he blows out the Olympic torch. Again, a perfect fucking gag of just, yeah, that's what a dork like uh, Superman would think was evil. <laughs> was like, but that represents good fellowship across mankind. Why would you do that? Like, Sitting at the bar flinging peanuts yeah, at the things. At a, at a mirror. <laughs> and it's just a great sort of the way he downs a shot of whiskey. He just bends his whole neck back. Um, no, it's you know, a, I think Superman 3 is half of a really good movie. I think what happens is that Lester is really uninterested in superheroes. Yeah. Um, and the, the weakest stuff in the film is the plot. Yeah. It's, the, it's uh, Though, Richard Pryor and the supercomputer. I, 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 and the other thing is I go back and forth on Richard Pryor in this movie because on the one hand it feels kind of racist. Like that he's like this weird bumbling buffoon when he's also the computer genius like can't okay can't the black guy not be a bumbling buffoon if he's literally the one who invented the world's greatest supercomputer like at that point can we not have him you know speaking malapropisms and stuff yeah i think i think we're beyond the point where we're showing him to be a a quirky genius yeah, he just steps way up. Yeah, he that. just steps into stupid, which again just feels kind of racist. But at the same time, 
like it it does feel like uh like it does sort of relate to Richard Pryor's stand up of just being very loose and very strange and um and and sort of having that sort of raw energy where he's, you can tell he's improvising a lot in the film and stuff and I think he's really funny in this um it goes beyond his performance though I mean there's like what is the reason of having him ski down a building in the middle of a dialogue scene? No, yeah, scene? that's a bad gag. And I and it's and a film like this, I don't care that, you know, the plot makes no sense or but the but the problem is that you do need some kind of basis. Like you need some kind of base interest or else it's just going to be pointless and Superman 3 um as long as there's not gags going on like the Rube Goldberg kind of showing Metropolis to be, like, the world's most incompetent city. <laughs> well, that opening credit scene I love. Yeah. It's, um, it's so inventive. Yeah, and but whenever there's not a sequence like that, or, like, Superman finding out about a collapsing bridge and being like, oh, I'll get there. I always do. Yeah, I always get there in the nick of time. <laughs> well, no rush. Like, he's... like It's like, it's like weird, like, date-rapey Superman. <laughs> like that, like... Those scenes are wonderful, and Evil Superman is wonderful, and the fight scene. I felt is... like Lester was really interested in that stuff and the whole story of Clark and Lana. Yeah, um, and and but the problem is he wasn't interested in telling a story. He was interested in these scenes, and you can tell because when by the time you get to the end, it's uh, it's just it's just like oh, and now there's a computer that shoots rays, and what is happening? <laughs> I don't give a shit. Um, we so, just have to wrap this up. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a. I'm not. I'm not defending it as a great movie. I don't. It's certainly not as good as Superman one, but I think people, you know, lump it in with Superman four, which is like horrible, horrible no, movie. Four is awful. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the uh, reaction to Superman three is because it isn't Superman one. Yeah, it isn't what Donner set out. To it's be. not. They're not. Yeah, and and I can I can get that if you feel like. There, you know, Superman. You know, you want to. You know, there's not like there's unlimited number of Superman movies. You want Superman movies to be Superman movies, and Richard and this and this asshole who took uh, who who took Superman two away from our precious Richard Donner is now making a silly comedy under the guise that it's a superhero a Superman movie. I can understand fans getting upset with that, but if you just judge it on its own merits, I think it's a pretty funny, uh, wacky comedy. Um, it is. So I like Superman. Uh, Lester claims that when he was brought onto the project, he had he didn't know who Superman was. <laughs> That's... Uh, now I find that claim yeah. suspect. How okay? Because Superman was like came out in the forties, right? In the fifties. Yeah. So it's not like oh he moved to England by then, like. Um, and Superman was the biggest thing then because you know. There's actually, I, I mentioned this earlier about the episode of the Indoor Kids with Film Crit Hulk on it. They were talking about Superman, and something I never really thought about that was really interesting to me was uh, Film Crit Hulk po- pointed out that the reason Superman was so big in you know the 40s and the 50s was that like people now are like, oh, but he's just invincible and he can do anything, so why would that be interesting? But like back then, like all you wanted to be was invincible because there was fucking polio going around and a nuclear bomb could drop on America at any time. Yeah, and if you read the original Siegel-Schuster comics, he was all about social justice. I mean, the 
the structure of Superman comics was that Siegel would be pissed off about something and he'd throw Superman at it. Yeah. <laughs> at one point it was like drunk drivers and traffic safety. So, so are you saying Siegel is the original um, Aaron Sorkin? Yes. He'd <laughs> <laughs> be like, this shouldn't be happening. I'm going to write a story where it gets fixed. I'm going to have Superman knock down an auto manufacturer. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to have Superman chastise Sarah Palin. Um, <laughs> oh man, have you do you, have you watched the newsroom? No, I haven't. I don't have cable anymore, so I have to wait uh, for things to hit online or DVD. Yeah, my parents my parents have cable, so sometimes if I'm over there, or and my girlfriend has cable, so if I'm over at their houses, I'll catch it on demand. It's I love Sorkin's dialogue, so it's really fun to listen to and stuff. But it is totally. Just like here comes the I've, white. I've been hearing the preaching element goes way overboard. Yeah, um, I I like the characters enough that it doesn't bother me, um, and it also because it is an actual news show, it makes more sense than like in Sports Night when randomly people are just doing witty dialogue and then out of nowhere there's a speech <laughs> about how hunting is wrong. <laughs> like, like it actually makes a little more sense in context than uh, something like Sports Night or Studio sixty, but. Uh, it's kind of it's yeah it's pretty much what you were saying about the Superman comics. It's just Sorkin throwing uh, Jeff da- Jeff Daniels at things that he doesn't like about society, um, <laughs> and I mean to an extent I can appreciate the earnestness. Uh, I you know I, I like earnestness more than cynicism, but yeah, you can't ever claim that Aaron Sorkin is just manipulating people because right. he knows it will work. Right, he he believes in what he's saying. Oh yeah, totally to a fault. Um, let's see. I think I think that's all the um, Richard Lister movies I was able to see. Is there any other one that you? Oh, I've seen a funny thing happen on the way to the forum. That's a good one. That was pretty good. It doesn't. I mean, it's sort of like Baby Lester. Yeah, yeah. Like he's building up to something, and I guess it was a pretty contentious production. Mm-hmm. A lot got- of it was taken away from him, and he was having a lot of fights with the producer about period detail. This is the funny thing: is he's making a stage musical. And he's packing the frame with all kinds of period detail and trying to make sure things are accurate. And that is a weird thing about that movie, isn't it? That, like, it almost it feels like a precursor to uh, Fiddler on the Roof in that way, where mm-hmm. like Fiddler on the Roof is a very stagey musical, but the in the film, like, it's really the all the details and period details that are really there. It doesn't it doesn't look like some kind of sketch comedy set on a funny thing happened away to the Forum. Yeah, and Forum has. Uh a lot of really inventive staging of the musical numbers. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't remember that that well, but uh, I, I do like, the, I like the music. I like Sondheim, so um, I'm a big fan of the music. And I'm a big fan of, you know, Zero Mostel and Buster Keaton and stuff, so. Um, to go back to Juggernaut for a second. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that came out the same year as The Taking of Pelham 123, which we mentioned earlier. And it's very similar to that. And I was actually pretty impressed with Lester's ability to generate tension, because I watched his movies in order. And up to that point, it wasn't a skill that we had seen from him. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's basically it's speed on a boat. Oh, <laughs> I think they made a movie like that. <laughs> yeah. That sounds now that you mention it. Um, uh, it's basically a terrorist has placed bombs on this cruiser. Is it so? Is it a very straight-ahead thriller? Like, what elements? Is there are there elements that you would say, oh, that's a Lester movie, or is it just a really good? No, if it didn't say Richard Lester at the beginning, I don't think anybody would peg it as a Lester film. That's interesting. 
but it's an extremely well done thriller and it's it's unlike anything else he ever did yeah i always respect guys who are able to direct like wide variety of films um like i always i always really respected richard donner despite the fact that he's you know not an auteur because you can't say his films have a voice to them and you can't even say like most of his films are great yeah but he's made a lot of great films uh and a lot of varied great films. To me, anyone who makes both The Omen and uh, Superman, you know, and Lethal Weapon, like, that's a that's a pretty interesting trifecta. Right, people like him and uh, Alan Parker, who's a big genre grazer. Yeah. Well, it was a lot more common in the, uh, in the uh, you know, 60s and earlier. Uh or no, Alan Parker is not. I mean, you mentioned The Adventures of Robin Hood was directed by the same guy who made uh, uh, Captain Blood and Casablanca. And yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, like Richard, I'm really excited to go back. Like often, I get burnt out. Like I'm, I'm not excited to go fill all my Ridley Scott holes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that gonna, sounds vaguely pornographic. I'm, yeah, I'm going to leave that set up for someone else to make the punchline. <laughs> But uh, no, I'm not, you know, like I get kind of, a lot of times when I'm prepping for the show, you know, it's very rewarding, but I get kind of burnt out. Um, but I'm really excited to go back and watch Richard Lester because uh, despite the fact that, you know, he's not, it's not all masterpieces and like I, I, I didn't really get into this much, but with something like Three Musketeers and, you know, uh, less so with Robin and Marion, but still a little bit there, like even the way he shoots the films, they feel very flat and just, uh, you know, He's not necessarily a master craftsman of images and stuff, but there's something about his sensibility that really, really taps into my brain so that even even a film like How I Won the War, in which I don't understand a goddamn thing that's happening, I'm still enjoying it. Like The only reason I didn't finish How I Won the War is that I write reviews of every movie I see, and I would not be able to review a movie like that. It'd be like re- reviewing a movie with the sound off. Like I just, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I would really recommend that you check out the knack and how to get it. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good companion piece to Hard Day's Night. It it really captures that whole '60s youth movement that, and the uh, the tension between the the old and the young at the time. Yeah, uh, it's it's a shame that there weren't more movies like Hard Day's Night though. Like. To me, I feel like most of the... Because there were a lot of copycat films. Like, Herman's Hermits had, like, two films. <laughs> like, Did they? I yeah, they had... Heard of this. Mrs. Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. And, hold on, I, wanna, I really want to look this up. <laughs> uh, uh, Mrs. Brown, you Got a Lovely Daughter. And then... Bah, 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 I think it was Hold On uh, was the film. Yeah, Hold On. Uh, with a big big puncture with a big uh, exclamation mark at the end. So, like, Herman's Hermits had some films. Uh, like, there have been there are a lot of copycat sort of films about, you know, bands running around and causing mischief, but they all felt more like like the Monkees than they felt like the Beatles. Speaking of which, the Monkees, there you go. Uh, yeah, Head. Head is a very interesting... Head feels like the movie that Help tried to be. Where yeah. Head is actually, like, very psychedelic and crazy and silly... But at the same and that's time, a sad statement that the monkeys made a better yeah. film than the Beatles did. Well, to be fair, Bob Rafelson made a better movie True. than a than a uh, perfunctory Richard Lester, which which makes more and sense. It's funny that you make that comparison because as I was watching Help and getting kind of tired of it, 
I, I was thinking, you know, if you split this up into half-hour increments, it would yeah. probably be pretty watchable. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And I think it... I can't remember if Help came out before or after the Monkees had a TV show. So I can't say, like, oh, it's just... But, it, yeah, it's just an extended Monkees episode. It's just, like, them running around wacky sets with wacky supporting actors, and all that was missing was a laugh track. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a few moments in Help, like, just some of the things R- Richard Lester does with the camera are really interesting, but... Yeah, it looks like the monkeys premiered in '66. Okay, so that would be after help, but you, it's, my point still remains. It just feels yeah. like a very pale imitation to what came before. Have you seen Head? I have. Yeah, I I really, I, I really enjoy that movie. I to me I really like to me yeah, that's neck that would be neck and neck with Hard Day's Night if the songs weren't bad. But I really don't like any of the songs <laughs> in Head, and that hurts it a lot. Um, I have more fondness for the songs than you do, but it's still... I, I can't quite put it up there. But I don't think there's anything in A Hard Day's Night that's as funny as Mickey Dolan's In the Middle of the Desert with a Coke Machine that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> like, that that whole sequence is one of the greatest things ever. Well, yeah, by the way, listeners, if you haven't seen Head, see Head. It's, it's like, shockingly good. Um, yeah, and it's kind of, And, like, it's got some of the bullshit psychedelia, but it actually, as, as someone who has done and enjoyed Acid, it has a lot of genuine psychedelia as well, where some of the stream of consciousness and spatial relations where people are shrinking. I second that as somebody else who's done Acid. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Take it to, from two hopheads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think it's been historically dismissed because people think it's going to be an extension of the Monkees TV show and just be wacky. Yeah, but, uh, the but Monkeys I think there's TV a little sh- more going on than that. Yeah, like Frank Zappa. <laughs> like Frank Zappa. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah, I'm really excited to go look forward to Richie Lester. Um, thank you for being on the show, Greg. Um, You're welcome. What was, the, what was your movie blog? Oh, I have a movie blog at gregdavidcraft.com, which I update when I get around to it. Uh-huh. And uh, I also do uh, some amateur weekend filmmaking, and you can find that at uh, pulledproc.com. And we have Pulled Proc Productions pages on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Cool. Cool. Is it a misspelled misspelling of pulled pork? It is. Okay, cool. We base everything on typos. I... <laughs> that, that, that also sounds like the basis of a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> Her at the like it's just people talking nonsense. Like we base everything on typos, and typos is spelled wrong. Um, yeah, well, thank you for being on. Thank you for making me watch Robin and Marion. Uh, I I owe you a, a life debt. I'm now your Chewbacca. I have to follow you around wherever you go. Thank you for pulling me into this because I've gained a whole new appreciation for a director I already liked. Yeah, well, I'm you know the show the show as a process of watching films really does work, doesn't it? Like. It does. It really does sort of like, wow, you learn a lot more when you clump all of one guy's movies together than when you sort of sporadically get around to them and then half remember. Um, So, yeah, next episode is going to be on Noah Baumbach. Uh, That's going to be fun Uh, (laughs) until I have to watch uh, Greenberg again, and then it's not going to be as fun. (laughs) Oh, boy. I I like that movie, but that is a really brutal movie. Um, It can be an endurance test. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can find me on uh, at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. Uh, our website is directorsclubpodcast.com. You can email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And, um, you know, don't, don't let Jason Weinberg's uh, half-read <laughs> letter slow you down. We really do love hearing from you. Um, it makes my day every time I get a forwarded email and someone says they enjoyed an old episode or something. So uh, we really love hearing from you. 
Um, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps. The more reviews we get and the more good ratings we get, the more people will see our our, our, our uh, podcast come up in the iTunes store and the more people will be able to listen to it. Um, you know, keep a lookout on the website. We have Gabe Powers writing some really good horror stuff. And uh, I'm speaking of weekend filmmaking, I've been writing a few uh, short films and other another project that uh, in a couple months, I think uh, listeners of this uh, podcast will be very delighted to see. So uh, there's that. Um, so yeah, until uh, next time, thanks for being here. Bye. Did you hear Patrick crying? What a loser. That's it. I'm done listening to this third-rate weepfest. I'm gonna go see if Nerdist has a film podcast. <laughs>